What's new, listeners? I'm Arthur Howard, the host of Two Cents Critic. If you want to move for reviews of books, movies, and TV shows, then join in. We're now on the second episode of Two Cents Critic Merry Month. Yes, the month where we're covering Christmas content, Christmas media here on the show. And on this particular episode, we're discussing the 1988 action Christmas icon Die Hard. Jumping on board for that is Andy, host of the Fat Dude Dicks Flicks movie podcast, which is made up of Let's Talk About and the Criterion Break. And I'm glad to see that back in May, actually, Criterion Break did an episode on Elevator to the Gallows, which I had a good time with and awesome. particularly enjoyed the Miles Davis score in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a good movie. I, that was the first time I'd ever seen that was uh, kind of before doing that episode. And man, that was a ton Ooh. of fun. So yeah, um, I'm, I'm glad we were, we were able to do an episode. I'm glad people listened to it too. <laughs> yes. And also you've actually done your own Die Hard podcast. Yes. On your, on your own show. Which is, you know, I'm glad, glad to see that. You know, you've got a Die Hard love there. But, uh, but yes, and, and now Andy, you've already spoken. So, you know, Andy is on the show here. I'm glad to have you on. Thanks so much for coming on to Two Cents Critics. How are you doing? Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm sorry. I broke the rule. Like, I oh. forget. I should not talk until I'm introduced. I'm just oh. I'm overzealous. It's okay. It's okay. I love this chatter. I love this chatter. But... but, yeah, I'm super excited to be here. I think, uh, uh, especially talking about Die Hard, it, it was, it's fun to kind of be the one who's like, oh, yeah, I love this movie. Because on my show, it was I had the guest on kind of talking about how much they love Die Hard. And then I just get to kind of chime in with like, oh, yeah, that's really cool. But this time, I feel like I get to just really go (laughs) over the top uh, and talk about how much I love this movie. So uh, I'm super excited and thankful uh, to to be on. Well, yeah, because, you know, Die Hard, it is a classic. And just to confirm, like, you know, I said before, action Christmas icon. Like, yes, I personally believe that is definitely a Christmas movie mm-hmm. all over the place. I mean, even just like the whole movie is about this guy trying to save his family. And I feel like that does yeah. fit with the traditional Christmas values of, you know, yeah. saving importance on your family, you know, your loved ones. And even just how the movie would actively use Christmas symbology, Christmas themes throughout the movie in different moments. And so it, I think it's a Christmas movie. And also, of course, oh. it's, set on, it's set on Christmas Eve. So, I mean, that's a big yeah. one. Yeah, like for me, like once the the Run DMC Christmas and Hollis uh, kicks off, like when they when he gets in the limo, I'm like, yes, this is a Christmas movie. Like nobody nobody could ever tell me otherwise, uh, because that song is like kind of my you know one of those little like go to Christmas songs that's like it's not rocking around the Christmas tree, it's not uh, Santa baby, but for me, like uh, uh, Christmas and Hollis is just like. That's that's my Christmas jam. <laughs> yeah. So yes, Die Hard. Now I will deliver some trivia about the movie, and say that this was based on the 1979 novel "Nothing Lasts Forever" by Roderick Thorpe, and a novel that I haven't read, but I was reading. Like, I was a- I was able to read about it, and the book apparently is quite is uh, quite dark compared to the movie. I don't know if you if you've heard about the book. So I've never read the book, but I've heard the same thing. And it was like, uh, it's different from, from what I understand is that it's a, it's a very different kind of like mood to it that this, this movie is, is an action movie. So of course there's like kind of that suspense and tension. Uh, but I also feel like 
uh, Bruce Willis's playfulness kind of gives it this tone of like, oh, well, this is still a fun movie. I feel yeah. like I have heard that the book is not fun. <laughs> like, just no, it, like, bleak. The whole se- yeah, bleak, cynical. Like, one of the things that, st- that stood out to me about the book is that apparently the villain has signed on all of, the, all of these, like, guerrilla fighters because he's going against this corporation, like the Saxon Corporation. And apparently this corporation in the book has made deals with the Hunter in Chile, this, like, this military dictatorship. And so the yeah. guerrilla fighters are just thinking, oh, we're going to fight against this corporation that's in league with this dictatorship. And so it makes, it makes the moments when, when the main character, who's actually, I think his name is, like, Joe Leland. It's just even, yeah. a, even a different name. But even yeah. when the main character kills off the minions, he actually feels kind of guilty about it. Because it's not like in the movie where it's like, oh, it's just these bad guys who want to steal the money and they're terrorists. It's like, oh, wait, mm-hmm. these are like, it's like a morally gray area with these guerrilla fighters and you don't feel co- totally triumphant about killing them off. And yeah. so even just in that sense, it's like, oh, this is not like the, who killed them. It's like, oh, do you really want to kill them? Oh. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> You almost feel bad that he is taking those people down. Is what it kind of what it kind of sounds like, and that's yeah, that's that's not your celebratory action movie. <laughs> also, specifically because also like not only are they like they're described as being like naive guerrilla fighters, it's also both men and women. And so in the book, mm-hmm. it's described particularly that Leland feels guilty, especially by killing off women. Oh sure, sure. Oh wow. So yeah, the book yeah definitely <laughs> cynical in that passage. Not realistic. <laughs> I might have to add it to my, my read list, though, just I because think, I kind of feel like I need something. <laughs> like I do think it would be interesting. It would be, it sounds interesting yeah. at the very least. Yeah. yeah. And oh, also, Shorp, he wrote the book after having this dream, apparently, about, about people who were armed and chasing after a guy in a building. And he had that dream after watching The Towering Inferno. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who, I, 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 there's something about like authors like having these dreams where it's just they feel like they're compelled to tell these crazy stories because that's how Twilight uh, came to be as well. Yeah. I just had an episode on Twilight. That's why it's super fresh in my mind. Yep, yep. Uh, I thought you I... might think about it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I just learned that. So now I get to share that fact. So that's a lot of fun for me. <laughs> well, it also reminds me of James Cameron about like, oh, you know, like he has a dream, you know, about, mm-hmm. and, then, and then he turns it into this world of Pandora. And Avatar. Yeah, yeah. Oh. just a, it's, it's, I, I always appreciate, I guess, because like, I have very vivid dreams too, but I have no yeah. uh, means <laughs> of being able to bring my dreams to life. So I guess I kind of always appreciate the people who, who can, because it's like, oh, they have these, they're these super creative people who have these super creative visions and yeah. they're able to do something about it. So it's like, ah, oh, just a little envious. That's all. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> And Die Hard was directed by John McTiernan, who also directed Die Hard with a Vengeance, that's the third Die Hard, Predator, The Hunt for Red October, Last Action Hero, which I have lots of love for, mm-hmm. the 1999 reboot of Thomas Crown Affair, starring Pierce Brosnan, Rene Russo, and Dennis Leary, and the 2002 reboot of Rollerball. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I saw that reboot of Rollerball. Yeah, oh. it, I don't. I don't remember particularly liking it. Yeah, I was gonna say that's one where it's like the le- the least we say about it, the better. Yep, yep. <laughs> uh, all, but of course, like Predator is great. Also, Die Hard is mm-hmm. a Vengeance. That, that's my second favorite Die Hard, actually. Yes, 
Yes, absolutely. It is great. Uh, and then there's a connection to, to Hans Gruber in that movie as well. So I think that's yes. kind of like it kind of carries the, the, the two movies, kind of molds the two movies together. Uh, and Samuel L. Jackson is just fantastic oh, yeah. in that movie. Yeah. Also, McKinnon, I was reading about this and I was looking up to, you know, some facts. He had been convicted of perjury against the FBI because he had hired a private detective to wiretap the phones of rollerball producer Charles Robin. And he served 10 months in prison for spending the rest of his one-year sentence under house arrest. He also got the, he was fined for, yeah, $100,000. Like, if, you know, I, I don't know everything about that, that case, but I seem to remember that there's some kind of South Dakota tie to that. I don't know exactly what it is. And I could just be like completely making that up, but I feel like I heard somebody talk about it where there is a South Dakota tie to that case. And I'm like, cool. So that's other than Mount Rushmore and, uh, the, uh, terrible thing that 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 is uh we also get to be known for john mctiernan's perjury case so (laughs) go south dakota (laughs) yep it says here yeah south dakota he 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 served he began to serve that term in south dakota yes sure 62 years old (laughs) oh man yeah it's funny to hear about stuff like that happens like yes he serves he goes to prison for the wiretapping, but we can't get yeah. Roman Polanski in prison for being a convicted pedophile and rapist. Right, right. <sighs> yeah. Oh, that's just the system. Yep, yep. It's a lot of fun, isn't it? <laughs> and Die Hard was written by a pair of Stephen E. D'Souza and mm. Jeb Stewart. Now, D'Souza, the writing credits for him are Die Hard Two. Commando, The Running Man, 1994's The Flintstones, 48 Hours, Judge Dredd, That's the One with Sylvester Stallone, Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, The Cradle of Life, and Hudson Hawk, which is another, that's also another Bruce Willis movie. Yeah, yeah, little, uh, little, little, little shady that movie, another one that you kind of want to sweep under the rug. (laughs) (laughs) I've never seen it, so I don't know what you're talking about, I don't even know much about it. Like, it's... It's bad, but it has that, it almost has that kind of like charm to it where it's like, okay, this is a bad movie, but I can have fun watching this. Okay, okay, so it's that kind of movie. I, I guess what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then Jeff Stewart, for him, his, credit, his writing credits are The Fugitive, you know, great there. The 1989 mm-hmm. Undersea thriller horror movie, Leviathan, another 48 hours. It's, not, it's a different 48 Hours movie. Yeah. For Sean Connery, Lawrence Fishburne, crime thriller, Just Cause. And an early draft of Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull that's called Indiana Jones and the Saucer Man from Mars. Oh. Oh, oh okay. Okay. Well, that would have been more of a, like, uh, uh, more on the nose, I guess, for what kind of movie Indiana Jones for. Uh, was. <laughs> the budget ranges from 25 to $35 million. At the domestic box office, Die Hard brought in approximately between $81.3 million and $83 million. And then outside of North America, Die Hard brought in about $57.7 million, making for approximately a total gross worldwide between $139.1 million and $140.7 million. Nice. 
Nice. Uh, yeah, and at that time, I mean, at that time, that was that was a runaway hit. Oh yeah, like, for '88, you know, definitely. That, that's a smash. Yeah. And it's funny to look back on this movie and be like, how like some people were skeptical towards the casting of Bruce Willis in this in this movie because mm-hmm. it was like, oh. He's only, you know, he, 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 he's only been a TV, he's only been on a TV show, you know, TV show work. Yeah. And it's like, can he really make a transition to action, to being an action star? And he did, you know, he oh, really yeah. did. And yeah, it's, I it's so funny because it's I do want to like, watch Moonlighting, though. I do want to watch Moonlighting sometimes. Yeah, especially now that it's streaming on Hulu. Like, I have very yeah. faint memories of Moonlighting. Like, the song is... Uh, the theme song for Moonlighting is like etched in my brain, so I feel like I will never forget that theme song. But I have very faint memories because I was I was actually alive when that show was on TV, um, and so I remember little bits and pieces of it. But now that it's on Hulu, like, and this is like streaming for the first time, like it, it's yeah. never been available to stream. So a lot of people are really excited that you can finally go back and watch it. Um, and so, yeah, I'm excited to go back and see it because he really has uh, a great comedic presence. I think it's he does. it's fun to kind of remember just how how fun it was to watch Bruce Willis, uh, you know, in 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 a lot of the projects that he's done. Yes. Well, that's what I have to say about Die Hard here. Before we get into our general thoughts and feelings, not spoilery, of course. Uh, also, I guess, like, Die Hard is, like, a very old movie, so I'm not sure there's really much you can spoil, per se, about it, but still. Right, right. right. <laughs> so, Andy, what do you want to say about Die Hard, general thoughts and feelings? So, in general, without giving anything away about this movie, I, my, my very most basic way of saying this is that I love this movie so much. Um, I feel like, and this is a bold statement, but I feel like Die Hard might be one of, like, the top-tier action movies, I'll say it, of all time. But, uh, and, I, and I think the thing that, that makes it so successful is that it has such a good blend of so many different things. There's a charismatic cast, like Bruce Willis, yes, but Alan Rickman, uh, Bonnie Bedelia, uh, Reginald Vell Johnson, like all of the main people in this cast are just really like knocking it out of the park. And same with the supporting characters, like uh, watching it through this time, like I've always thought that Carl was a really daunting kind of like henchman, but watching it this time, it's like, man, Carl, I, I would be terrified if I round the corner in this building and Carl is there with a machine gun because he just has that like, Eastern European, like, villain look about him that is just so dreadful. So, cast is great. The script is really tight. Like, it's just, it, it, it kind of builds the story at a really good pace, allows the characters to have great dialogue. It lets everything kind of unfold at the pace that it needs to. Cinematography is beautiful. Like, I, I don't know that I ever picked up on that before, but it's just, there are moments in this movie where it is just breathtaking. And it has some of the best lens flares I have ever seen. I think in this era, people just kind of utilize them because it's like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we put a lens flare right here? But this one, it's like, there's kind of a majesty to it. Like the moment when they open up the vault, this sorry to get into like specifics of the movie, but they open up the vault and like, it's almost like the lens flare becomes this halo 
around the characters. I did see your tweet. I thought you'd tweet about about that. Yeah. I was just like, this is amazing. (laughs) But yeah, uh, you know, uh, I I just, I just think this movie is, is wonderful. It's up there with another one that I probably people will be like, really? Uh, It's up there with, I think speed is a really great action movie as well. Directed by the cinematographer from this movie, uh, coincidentally enough. Uh, but yeah, this is this is just a wonderful movie, and I'm always really grateful for how it kind of thrust Bruce Willis like into a place of stardom because I think it's tough because of what he's going through, and that you know that might be kind of the reasoning behind why some of his movie choices have been less than stellar over the last several years. Yeah, he just but, needed a paycheck, maybe, you know? Yeah, just, yeah. Yeah. I wasn't able to act, I wasn't able to act for it because, like, oh, he's undergoing, like, a, an illness. Right. But I think this movie kind of serves as a great reminder as to this man was full of charisma and charm and talent, and he was just a force to be reckoned with on the big screen. So, yeah, uh, general thoughts, I love this movie so much. <laughs> Nice, nice, and uh, and you and you were saying like you know you, you brought up speed, and I gotta say I have lots of love for speed as well. And when it coming down to Die Hard, I do feel like you know I agree with you. I do feel like this is one of the best action movies out there. Like this is a movie that has permeated our culture so deeply mm-hmm. to the point mm-hmm. where there's a whole a whole subgenre of just Die Hard movies, Die Hard ripoffs. And, of course, you know, we have things like Speed, you know, Speed is one of them, and there's also Cliffhanger, and Under Seas, which I saw earlier today, and, oh, the Has Fallen series. It's Uh, so funny, because it's like, you you said that it created this whole genre of, like, you know, rip-offs or movies that are like that, and it's so right, Speed is diehard on a bus, Under Siege is diehard on, like, a naval ship, like, that's how they describe those movies, so, yeah, you're totally right, that's so funny. Also, White House Down. Also, mm-hmm. I haven't seen White House Down, but definitely sure. like a, a Die Hard ripoff there. The Rock as well, which I still need to see as well. Yeah. Other movies like that. or And then Cliffhanger. I do want to rewatch Cliffhanger because I saw that when I was a kid. Cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. But I want to rewatch it, see if it still holds up, which is basically Die Hard, but what if on a yeah. mountain? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Die Hard, it is just, you know, it's full of action. It's clever. It moves along at a good pace. It, the movie lasts o- over two hours, but I never yeah. feel like it slows down. Like it always keeps me right. gripped within the movie. Whereas other movies, even as uh, shorter than two hours, it, other movies can be like, "Ah, eh, you're dragging me along." I feel like mm-hmm. Die Hard, nope, just keeps me gripped the whole time over the two hour runtime, and it really traps me within this claustrophobic atmosphere, so the environment of Nakatomi Plaza. Bruce Willis starring this, and he is he does a great job of playing this this protagonist John McClane, who is who really was you know groundbreaking for that time period as someone who mm-hmm. is vulnerable, who genuinely feels scared so much of the time, and we and it makes yeah. us feel terrified for him. Like, oh, could he die? And over time, like you know, he gets all bloodied up. You know, he's all sweaty. He loses clothing, and it's like, damn, like he. He is like, he is human. He is not like an Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of superhero. Someone who can just ram through obstacles or like, you know, Mm -hmm. can just deflect bullets off his body. No, he is a human. Something that the the Die Hard series does lose, unfortunately, 
as the sequels go on, to the point where mm-hmm. as that, when, in that final movie, A Good Day to Die Hard, it's just like, oh, now, like, now John McClane is officially just that superhero stereotype, and it's just really yeah. not entertaining anymore. It's not, it's not, it's not, not compelling anymore to watch him be like that. Oh, well. Yeah. <gasps> oh, yeah, I, I A Good Day to Die Hard, that was such a bad way to end the series. <laughs> It's so bad. It's so bad. It's one that it's like, for me, it's like that movie that I just kind of forget about intentionally. I'm like, nope, that movie does not exist. <laughs> I'm just, I'll, I'll, I'll go with, uh, 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 die, what is it? What's the fourth one? Live Free or Die Hard. Yeah, like, I'll, I'll, I'll let the series in there. It's Which one, which is fine. That one's fine. It's not the best of the series by any means. But, yeah. but it's better than a good day to die hard. <laughs> yeah, I, I gave I gave Live Free or Die Hard two and a half stars on the box. It's sure. not great, but it's not it's not horrible. It's just like eh, mediocre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could have the done, other ones, especially. I could have done with a better sidekick than Justin Long. I don't think they had much oh, chemistry. Bruce yeah. Willis and Justin Long. Yep. <laughs> Definitely. Um, you were you were talking about this the superhero aspect of these action stars, yep. and the the first thing that jumped to my mind is like now the Fast and the Furious series. Yeah, like, I never feel like anybody in that series is ever in any kind of peril because it's like, of course they're not going to get hurt. Like they're they're the stars in the movie, and it's in their contract where they're going to yeah. be fine. But it's like. Uh, Bruce Willis, you know, and, and Vin Diesel, like, jumping off of trucks in midair, like, <laughs> slamming into people. Like, in, in the first Die Hard, Bruce Willis, like, is in a glass office, and they shoot out the glass, and he runs over the glass, and the next scene is him picking glass out of his feet. Uh... He is hurt. It is painful for the audience. That is, uh, that's what you have to put the character through. That's what you have to put the audience through uh, because Fast and the Furious just ain't it. <laughs> yep, to make, yes, yeah, to make characters feel real. And that's what this movie does. Mm-hmm. Like, it, and even, and it's not just John McClane, but also, like, you know, at, you were saying before about how the cast is charismatic. You know, I do agree with that. I think the cast, you know, had a great cast here. I like how a lot of characters, even in, in the supporting cast, get fleshed out. You know, like Sergeant Al Powell yeah. or, the, or Holly. And then, of course, you know, Hans Gruber. Like, of course, he's like mm-hmm. one of the, I feel like one of the best movie villains out there. Just this, yeah. this intelligent and cold and articulate, ruthless villain who then gets amped up by Alan Rickman's performance. Oh, it's just, a, just an incredible performance there. And I love the trash talk. The banter gets exchanged between Gruber and McClane. And they're not even together for most of the movie, but like right. still, it's great to hear them like talk over the radio, and and then even the minions. Like I feel like I feel like the, the minions in this movie, most of the minions get more get just a bit more human nuance than the minions we typically yeah. see in these movies. And like personally, my favorite minion is Theo, so the tech whiz, because yes. I find it very unnerving how indifferent he is to all the violence around him. He's just able to be so upbeat, so happy go lucky. And then meanwhile, it's just like people are just, you know, his, his accomplices are just killing people around him. And yeah. it's just, like, he never kills anyone himself. But the fact that he's able to just stand there and be so apathetic to all of the violence, all of the brutality, mm-hmm. it gives me the chills. And I feel like, like, yeah. the, like the character himself is interesting. I feel like the actor does a great job at playing him. So I feel like, you know, mm-hmm. personally, CL is my favorite minion here. Oh. 
Yeah, he's he's great. Like there are moments where it's like he's almost providing sports commentary while right. they are killing people. Yeah. It's he is he is so detached and disconnected from what is actually happening because I feel like he is very you know, very goal-oriented. Like yeah. he wants to help them pull off their scheme. Yeah. And that's all that really matters to him. He wants to be successful. He wants to prove that he can crack this vault and the violence and the death that, that are kind of happening in the meantime, doesn't matter. Doesn't no. matter. He just, he is very set on, on winning yeah. and yeah, he's great. That's, that's a great, great side character. Yeah. 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 Good call. Good call. And now I will say the movie definitely, uh, it doesn't hold up completely well in terms of it's, uh, some of its politics in regard oh. to, well, how, so the media. The media doesn't get a great portrayal in this movie, does it? And I'll yeah. talk more about this in the plot breakdown. But it's like, damn, the, according to the movie, the media is just nothing but a bunch of greedy reporters who just want the news. They want the sensationalism to bring in yeah. the money, bring in the attention. And it's like, uh, <laughs> I don't like this. Right, yeah. And like uh, uh, the... Um they're also portrayed as really dumb. Like, cause they, when they have yeah. the, the anchor man, the kind of talking head, like he's like, uh, they talk about Helsinki and he's like, that's, uh, Sweden. And then he like smiles and that's like, actually that's Finland. And it's like, Duh. it's just this, it's this little detail that it's like, Oh, they're really trying to paint the picture that the media is just stupid, self-serving, but very, very greedy and very focused wow. on sensationalizing the story, like you said. Yeah, I that's and, that's a, and, that's a really good point. And look, not not that that's completely untrue. Sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. for you know, for me, I'm just you know, I'm very disappointed as I'm watching Western news media mm-hmm. take a very pro-Israel bias and not care about Palestine at all. So, yeah. and then also I should say, like you know, Palestinian journalists are doing a whole hell of a lot, sacrificing their lives to cover what's going on in Palestine or the genocide. So you know, I appreciate right. I appreciate journalism when uh, diligent reporters are covering the news and when they're telling the truth and uh, putting their lives out there. I appreciate journalism like that. That is what journalism yeah. we need to strive for. Right. I just wish and, I just wish Die Hard could have given a spotlight on that sort of journalism, the truthful, yeah. honest journalism. Yeah. So it's not all this like picture of like, oh, these people are all bad yeah. and all scuzzy. You kind of you want you want there to be that mix there. But I think, you know, the, the focus on this was really just trying to show that this uh, William Atherton's character is just a greaseball. <laughs> like, oh, just whatever it as, takes to get that story. Greasy as hell. And, yeah. he, and he does pop yeah. up. Remember, he comes back in, in uh, the second yep. movie. Yeah. Oh, man. And, and then also, of course, like, you know, also the movie is definitely propaganda, which I kind of feel like inherently happens mm-hmm. when you do revolve around a movie around a top protagonist. And it was like, right. we'll cover this more in the plot breakdown, but when we learn about Powell's backstory, it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't oh. age too well, does it? I don't know. It's like, no. I, I, I guess it could have been handled worse, I do think, but yeah. it's still not great. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That is, that, is, that is a really good point to kind of think of that through the lens of today. Because it is like, oh, ooh, you probably, I would probably be asking for your job, Officer Powell. I would probably be 
believe. Yeah. Ooh. It's like, yeah. I think the elements, like, it's interesting to criticize. I think they also do provide a fascinating freeze frame of American mm-hmm. culture, of Definitely. what it was like in that period, of, mm-hmm. of just, like, how we were viewing masculinity and America, the, the U.S., or the country, and just even, like, how this movie brings up Westerns, like, Wild West mm-hmm. movies, and how the impact that's had on the U.S., on our on our yeah. society, on our culture. Yeah. Which is, again, yeah. It, it, it's, it's very interesting to look at. Yeah, because it's like you kind of think about what's really popular in the 1980s, and it's like we kind of touched upon it. Schwarzenegger, Stallone, you know, and then Bruce Willis is kind of like the counterpoint to that because he's vulnerable, but it's still this very, like, masculine figure like yeah, he even, scoffs at the ideal of his it, wife it, like taking his own, her own name again yeah uh, it, yeah even as a as an everyman protagonist you know he's still like mm-hmm. he's still like, a masculine version of that he's like yes. i'm not gonna listen to the authorities i'm gonna go on my own path <laughs> right exactly so it's like you know as as much as like this movie kind of like broke new ground and what it was trying to do with its hero it's still like uh, men are men. Uh, they're gonna they're gonna take care of business. They're gonna make sure that their wife takes their last name again. They're gonna win the day. Like it, it really del- still has that kind of vibe. But I think that that's definitely a product of the time that it was made because yeah. you know we're 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 in the Reagan era and uh, yeah. yeah, that's a whole that's a whole another conversation. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, I think we've been. Delivering plenty of general thoughts and feelings on this movie. So now, time for us to present our wind-up scores. Now this is the score that ranges from 0 to 100 to express how we think about the movie. So, Andy, what is your wind-up score? Listen, I'm like I said, I'm really high on this movie. And I, I feel like it's still, even with the, the criticism that I think can certainly be levied at it, I think as far as a movie and entertainment is concerned... It can still be, uh, it's still really close to perfect. So I think, I think I'm going to give it a 93. Like, I think Ooh, that's kind of where I'm at. I, like I said, I love this movie. It's hard for me to really give anything a full 100. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I, I think this movie is as close, as close as it can be. Um, I just love this movie so much. So yeah, a 93 would be my score. Good, good. You know what? Because I'm also going to give 93 my mind the score. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. I just, yeah, again, lots of love for this movie, you know, that I saw for the first time last year, and I loved it back then, and I still love it now on rewatch, and it is just like, it is It is a classic. It is it's Die Hard, and it is a movie that has done so much for, for cinema, for society, for like the tropes that it's inspired, or that it's promoted, and I'm glad I still love it. You know, I'm glad that my environment didn't go down on the rewatch. No, it's so great. Great action. You yeah. know, it gets just some chuckles out of me. Love characters. Love the past and the die hard. Yeah, just a ton of fun. Ah, yeah. Ton of fun. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad that that uh, that you your your enjoyment of it carried over into a repeat viewing. So that's that's always good to hear. Yes. Ah, well, I think that we can move onward to the plot breakdown now. So listeners, if you have not seen the movie, maybe you can pause the podcast, you know, go check it out yourself. I would be surprised. I feel like there were a couple of my friends who hadn't seen Die Hard yet recently. Like one of them saw it 
the other mm-hmm. fans don't need to see it. But so I feel like you know there's also people who have not seen the movie yet. But yeah, you know if you haven't seen it yet, you know go ahead and watch it. Yeah. Or if you have seen it or you haven't, but you're okay with spoilers, then you can stay right here. Yeah, it's interesting to me because it's like you know, and this is. I always feel like I'm kind of breaking into old man talking, but because I was like, I feel like this movie has been part of my life forever. Like, it's always like, oh, you've never seen Die Hard? But in a shocking piece of truth, uh, new people are born every second. <laughs> so, so, so people are, people, of course, people are going to exist that have never seen this movie. So, yeah, I say this is one that, that uh, listen, we, we've talked about how much we love this already. So definitely watch it. And then, you know, Either come back and listen, definitely, or if you don't definitely. mind spoilers, get ready, because here we go. Ah, so, Die Hard, we open on Christmas Eve with John McClane, an NYPD detective, as his plane is landing in Los Angeles, and he doesn't like flying, so the passenger beside him advises him to walk around on a, on a, a rug with bare feet and make fists with his toes. Because it's so relaxing, apparently. And this is, of course, one of the iconic beats of the movie, Fist with Your Toes. And it's fascinating that, like, just this one little moment, one little thing, and then it leads on to, like, oh, it causes, causes trouble for him later on. And so I'm wondering, because I haven't, like, I've, I haven't done, like, the fisting with my toes. I haven't had to do that myself like you know relax but what about you no i have never i have never done that what i do though is like so if i'm stressed like i will take my shoes and socks off and kind of rub my feet on the carpet like not ball them in the the the, like making fists with my toes but i'll certainly like rub them because i like (laughs) i like how the softness feels so uh and i apologize to listeners i have an anxious dog (laughs) So, so yeah. he is, he is sitting in the corner, just kind of whining because I'm doing something and his mom has left. So, sorry. Hello. I always try to like edit out. Edit oh, out sure, sure. You know, but, oh, well. Oh, also, so the passenger notices the gun and McClane's racket. And he's like, it's okay, I'm a cop. You know, I've been doing this for 11 years. And it's funny, I, I think it's funny how the movie uses that as a way to supposedly get us to be like, oh, he's a cop. So that means we can trust him. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's part of that 80s culture, you know. Mm-hmm. Or even, I guess, not even just 80s, but I guess maybe it's just American culture in general. It's not like, it's not like that, but it's just in the 80s. Yeah, it's that it's that era. I mean, I, I do think a lot of it is like 80s and pre-80s culture where it's like, oh, yeah, you can trust cops. Of course you can trust a cop. So, uh, but also it's a really good punchline to the, the guy's joke where it's like, yeah, I've been traveling for seven years, you know, trust me, uh, I'm, I'm oh, yeah. good at this. And then he's like, oh, I'm a cop, I've been doing this for 11 years, uh, I know what I'm doing. And then John has a little flirtatious moment with a stewardess on the plane. And yeah. I believe this is meant to be a reference to him meeting a stewardess in the book. And mm. he actually, and in the book, he actually talks to her throughout the plot over the phone. I did not know that. Yeah, I feel like this might be an, an homage to that. Sure. Meanwhile, the Nakatomi Corporation is hosting a Christmas party at Nakatomi Plaza, and this is where John's estranged wife, Holly, is working. Mm-hmm. So we get introduced to the whole place, and we get, we get introduced to Holly. We get introduced to one of her co-workers, Harry Ellis, 
who is just a, such a sleazeball. You know, we, it's funny, we also, we, we had mentioned Thornburg earlier, that's William Asselton's character, the reporter, but Harry, he is also so damn sleazy. Yes, he is. He is, he is the sleaziest character in the whole movie, like, without question. Like, yeah. that, is, that is a man who is, uh, uh, coked out the entire movie. <laughs> yeah, coked out, testing Holly. Yeah. <sighs> and... Man. We also realize that Holly is is John's wife and the mother of the two kids. And I really appreciate how the movie just cleverly gives an exposition through the family photo. Yeah. In general, I think the movie does a good job with that, like with like exposition or with setting up setting things up with like Chekhov gun sort of things, just in a very smooth fashion. And yes. you know, that's I feel like that's an underrated uh, aspect because sometimes movies can do this very clumsily. They serve mm-hmm. the exposition and the foreshadowing in your face. Yeah, I'm always a fan of showing as much as you can instead of just telling. And I feel like this movie does a really good job of like, you know, of course it kind of like, it highlights the important points by telling you what's going on. But I feel like it most of what happens is it's showing. Like, you know, it shows the pictures. It shows him reacting to seeing uh, uh, Holly's name on the, uh, like the, the, the employee yeah. list. Like yeah, it's all yeah. it's all there. You really see what's happening, and that's a nice kind of like. It's where it treats the audience like we're going to let you experience this story as it unfolds. We don't feel like we have to really catch you up on things, uh, but I mean, it does. It, it does tell you a little bit of backstory as the movie goes along. But I think it handles it really nicely. Yes, and another moment of praise is after Hardy calls home to check in on her kids. She then takes that family photo and puts it face down. Yeah. So that and that moment serves two things. It's like, oh, you know, it, just, it shows you how she feels about her family and how, like, you know, the strange state that you're in right now. But also, it's set up for the plot because then it makes it so it so it takes some time for Hans Gruber to realize that John McClane is part yeah. of the family. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's so it's such a good a good way of doing that because it like it presents it presents it to be a moment of discovery for the characters for the villain uh, as well. So yeah, I like that. Yeah. I like that so much. And then McSane meets Argyle, played by Devereux White, and Argyle is his limo driver. I like when Argyle is like, you know, this is my first time driving a limo, and John is like. This is my first time writing in one, <laughs> and I feel like, and and the movie and the movie is like using that to be like, hey, look, this is a working class man, you know? Mm-hmm. That's right. That's He's right. not all fancy. Yeah. <laughs> and along this ride, you know, we're learning that Holly has been living here for six months because of of her job. Meanwhile, John's been staying over in New York, and. He's expecting Holly to move back sometime. So he's basically like a stubborn old husband. The old stereotype was like, oh, no, I want I want you to stay here. Be my wife. Stay in the house. That's right. That's right. You, sh- you should be in the kitchen barefoot <laughs> cooking while I'm off uh, you know, being a cop. That total, yeah. total 80s machismo, uh, which I think, too, by, by really... Now, this is of course spoiling it for later in the movie, but I think by well, what, building what, that what, up what, what, so yeah, but for building that up so strong of how you know how set in his ways he was, 
it makes the moment like at the end of the movie resonate more where he's like, tell Holly, this is how I felt. And I think it's, you know, by design, like we're supposed to be like, yeah, John, you're right. I'm glad you've seen the error of your ways. Yeah. And I also love how, how sad he all is here. You can just tell that McClane is like, oh, I don't want that right now. Stop, stop gabbing in my ear. But Argyle yeah. just won't stop talking. He wants to it's know great. about all about John. It's just a, a fun, like, Argyle is such a fun character that, like, in the grand scheme of things, isn't in the movie a lot. But, yeah. like, still has this, this presence that you never really forget that he's there. And it's so cool that he gets a cool way to dispatch a villain at the end of the movie too so yeah team argyle <laughs> yeah yeah so that's a spice like that, that's why i said that's why i say about you know characters who feel fleshed out like even characters like argyle who like you said isn't in the movie that much but he still like feels like a, a lived-in person he feels like mm-hmm. he has his own life going on yeah you know? uh, yeah uh, so, you know, it, it's great to cut back to him, you know, whenever he's in the limo, because, you know, he eventually gets stuck in the parking garage, and he, we cut back to him a few times in the limo when he's just, like, partying, listening to music, he's got the big teddy bear that John brought along in the back seat, and then he would be listening to the car radio to be like, hey, what's going on with Max Homie Plaza? I need the updates. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so then they reach the plaza. And our guy was, is going to wait for John in the parking garage, see if he'll need him later. And then John is here now. Funny to see him use the touch screen for the Plaza directory. And to see him kind of be like, trying to figure out how to work it in the late 80s. It's just funny to see a tech like that being used. Yeah. <laughs> and this is, this has kind of been mentioned earlier, but when he was, you know, looking through the directory and realizes that Hardy has switched back to her former surname, Venero. And John is clearly not happy about that. He's just like, Christ. And again, that is, that is a smart little moment. Yeah, it shows, okay, their, their marriage isn't in the best state right now. Yeah. It needs some repairing. Yep, it's a, good, it's a good setup of showing that without, like, you know, saying, hey. Uh, I mean, and of course, like I said, they do talk about it later on that the marriage has issues. But I think this is a really good way of kind of indicating that off the bat. Yeah, yes. So John is making his way to the party, doesn't particularly care for the guy who just kisses him on the street out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then he runs into Joe Takagi, the boss, who mentions several floors are still under construction. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, and that will be important for later because we do go through a lot of these floors, you know, yeah. not completed. And we also run into Harry in Hardy's office as he's snorting cocaine and sniffing a lot. Oh and when I was watching this movie, I was like, damn, the sound design for his sniffing is loud. <laughs> they really want you to know what he's doing. Yes. <laughs> he is he is a pro with that coke. <laughs> yes. And the tension rises in the room once Hardy gets in there as she and Ron reunite. And Harry is like, Harry bought Hardy his Rolex. And so he's like, show him the watch. And McSane is like, I'm sure I'll see it later. And yeah. but again, another a small little moment, but it's like, oh, you won't see that watch later, John. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a good... There, there's so many like little things. Just little, tiny little details where it's like, oh, I'm going to set this up. I'm going to set this up. I'm going to set this up. And it's like and it the movie like, kind of... Yeah, kind of goes through the checklist of paying things off. Oh, Cooper. 
Oh no. <laughs> he is he is by my feet. Uh and usually he howls when there's no one around. I'm right here. <laughs> oh no. Buddy, you are the saddest sack ever. And I love you. <laughs> Okay. Okay. <laughs> this, this is this is your bonus guest, Arthur. <laughs> oh. Sorry, man. <laughs> I I appreciate your patience. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, it's okay. Uh, and then we have a, a quick moment where we cut to a truck riding along because you know, obviously Hans Gruber and his gang are eventually arriving, and then back to John and Holly as they chat. And at first, things seem pretty peaceful because he's like, oh, he's got plans to bunk with his old boss who's now living yeah. in California, uh, Cappy Roberts, they call him. Yeah. But she offers him a spare bedroom to stay in. And it seems like maybe, you know, they could be open to reconciliation. Yeah. But then, oh no, it evolved into a whole argument so fast once mm. he brings up her going back to Janeiro. He had and, to open his stupid mouth. Yeah. <laughs> and... It definitely feels like they've had this argument plenty of times before. Mm-hmm. And when Hardy says, I know exactly what your idea of our marriage should be like, I just leaned back and went like, oh dear. Like, yeah. It paints such a crystal clear image of the marriage and yeah. how fragile it is right now. Like all of the fights they've had. And mm-hmm. again, like I said before, he wants her to stay in a white box. And she's just like, stop it, let's go. Yeah, yeah. Like, let her live her life. Let her work this job that means something to her. Because, you know, he said in the the limo something like, well, he never expected her to, like, be successful. And here she is. Like, she is very high in command in this company. Like, dude. Listen, as a cop, I understand that that is a job that means something to you. But, like, let her, like, bring home the... Let her bring home the money. Isn't that right, Coop? That's right. Let her bring home the money. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so then Hardy goes out to give a speech, and Ron stays behind in the hotel room to just scold himself. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, then, and then this is when Gruber and his gang arrive at the plaza. We've got them storming in. We've got Carl and Theo. Heading into the lobby, and they and you know, and Carl kills a couple people. While, mm-hmm. well, specifically, what happens is that Carl killed someone at the front desk while Theo was just talking on about basketball, mm-hmm. and he's like, "Boom, two points!" As the guy gets killed, and again, it's it is it's it's disturbing. It's it's chilling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. But also, like, and maybe this is just kind of because of our reaction to violence. Like, there is something funny about it too. Like, because it's like, oh, he's Darcy, yeah, he it's like Darcy, so comedic. Yeah, yeah, he's so easygoing about this terrible thing that's happening. So, yeah, that's a it's a really good moment. Even with the timing of it, mm-hmm. just to, to, almost like the dark comedic timing was again like just like killing the guy, and then that's when Theo was like, boom, two points. You know, just like yeah. a reaction to that. Yeah. <laughs> and. Theo is locking up the parking garage, shutting down the escalators, handling all of the electronic stuff, and then the other minions come in to take everyone hostage. A couple people were fucking in an office. Yeah, yeah, they were. Horrible times, horrible times to do that, unfortunately. I so, you know, as many times I've seen this movie, I almost feel like every single time I watch it, I forget that there's nudity in it. 
because of this scene, it's like, oh, yes, this is an 80s movie. I'm sorry. I forgot for a second what kind of movie yep. this this probably intended to be more so than what it what it has become. So. Yeah. It was, it's like, it was this, and then also was, I don't know, like the Playboy-esque magazine yeah. Oh, yeah. that put yeah. up on the wall in that, in, that, in that quarter for some reason. Like, yeah. I guess like, I, I guess I kind of appreciate it being there just because it does provide a marker. It, it helps me be like, okay, yeah, this is the quarter. Like, I remember this right. quarter that McSane passes through. But also, like, why realistically would you put the pages there like, hey, you know what? Put these pages here. Just, just in case someone passes by and just happens to feel really horny. And this particular cold hallway. Yeah. I feel like in a lot of movies, especially at this time, like, you know, you have the mechanics, how they set up their shop with all the pictures of, like, naked women and women in bikinis. So this is kind of, like, their homage to that. But it's like, who who is going to be up there long enough where they have to have this spread of naked women. Like, is it the is it the elevator mechanic? Like, this is where he hangs out on know. a regular business day. <laughs> so, yeah, I uh, it's it makes something so it's like you know that Bruce Willis can track where he is, but I guess logistically and the the realistic side of like functionality, I don't know why it's there. <laughs> oh, also one of the henchmen, Tony Vesky. I thought he looks a lot like Jeffrey Dahmer. Did you yeah. think that? Yeah. So like, so he and Carl are brothers, right? Like they're, yes. they're yes. Oh, like, and that that's a really uh, cool twist, you know, or not twist, but cool kind of characterization thing too, because it's yes, like, then I you agree. have these henchmen that are connected, but yeah, he looks like Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah. He just has this very creepy, those, those, the, the, the glasses and the way that he combs his hair. Like I yeah. was just like, I would not doubt that outside of this opera operation, that maybe he's kind of killed some people just for fun. So, yeah. Hey, and, okay. and just the dynamic between Tony and Carl is interesting too, because then once, you know, because Tony is the first guy to get killed off, the first henchman mm-hmm. to get killed off, and then that provides Carl a personal motivation to hunt down the plane. So that adds yeah. another, just another little intriguing facet to the movie, like another way for one of the minions to stand out. Yeah, it gives you, I don't know, not like, because you're not going to care about these henchmen as far as like, where you ever really feel like they're in the right, but it kind of gives under- you this like, yeah, yeah, you understand, like you get why he is so driven. Yeah, yeah, understand, like, they're humans. At the yeah. end of the day, they're still humans. They're people, right. they have feelings. Yeah, oh, yeah. So now John is worrying what the hell is going on because he was making fists with his toes on the rug. <laughs> and then he called Argyle, but then the call gets cut off because now it's like, oh, the criminals are disabling the phone line, Tony and, and Carl. So now John gets his gun, tries to figure out what the hell is going on. And then, of course, you know, Gruber, Hans Gruber comes in and calls out Nakatomi for being a corporation of greed. And he manages to find Takagi. And he introduces himself in such a polite way. He's like, how do you do? It's a pleasure to meet you. <laughs> and, and, and even in the elevator, when he knows that Takagi is wearing a John Phillips suit, and he's like, I have two myself. And yeah. just like, even when you first meet him, just these first few minutes, he's, he's very refined, polished. Mm-hmm. This is it's clearly like someone who's very smart, refined, calm. Yes. That you're dealing he, with. Is, he is a very regal 
for, for lack of a better word, as the movie presents it, a very regal terrorist. Um, but it's, it's like, uh, you know, I, I don't know if we spent a whole lot of time uh, on Alan Rickman's performance here. This is his first movie. Like, this is his first movie and he is like right out the gate just knocks it out of the park with this performance of this guy who is like clearly focused on on doing bad no matter the consequences but also like so very elegant about everything that he does and it's like i feel like to have such a blend for a character like this and this being your first performance to just feel so confident like, man, I've I've done theater work in the past and really wanted to be an actor. I don't think I've ever exuded the kind of confidence that Rickman does uh, in this role. Like, it is just incredible that he is like, I'm just going to do, I'm just going to treat this character the way I think it deserves to be treated, and we're just going to go with it. And his performance is just like, I mean, all these years later, I still think he's one of the best screen villains. Like, I just think he is... Uh, on top of his game, where it's yeah. it's chilling in what he and, and I think his his lack of anger at times is more chilling than when a character goes over the top being angry. Uh, so yes, yeah, I agree. I just, he's great. Someone like Gruber who is just calm like that in general. Like yeah, if I if I'm watching a villain and they're just so calm, so collected, yeah, I mm-hmm. agree. I can find that to be quite terrifying as well because yeah. then it's like, oh wait, I can't quite tell like what you're feeling, you know, if you're feeling angry, are you going to just kill someone? You know, if someone is openly angry, it's more predictable as to when they might kill someone, when they might just start, you know, yeah. shooting bullets, you know, what's going to happen? But yeah. he's just so calm about it. And and even with uh, Snape, Severus Snape, which is, of course, mm-hmm. another iconic role for Alan Rickman, also, yeah. he definitely brings that elegance to the role. Yes. You know, it, Except, except that role of Snape is much more like he's much more snide about it. Much more mm-hmm. like just dripping with arrogance and disdain. But still, and, but there's the same, still, yeah. there's still that uncertainty. Like, and I think that's what's so fun is because it's like, like Snape is is scary and mean. Like you know yeah. he's mean. He he treats these kids like shit. Like he does this whole series. But like, there's still this thing where it's like, yeah. does he care? more about his like does he care about his job enough to not like be uh totally like evil like it's such a it's such an interesting mix yeah snape is another fantastic character but and i think so much of that rests on rickman's shoulders for bringing it to life because it's great the the great in the books uh uh, snape is great in the books too but seeing him brought to life by alan rickman just makes him like fantastic like just an exceptional screen character that's a whole different movie though (laughs) taking a taking a right turn there (laughs) oh i p rickman yeah yeah big time then gruber is negotiating with takagi because he's he's like hey i want i want the 640 million dollars in negotiable bear bond that you have locked in your vault and computer controlled the vault so i need to code from you we're not here for like any particular political cause. We just want the money. And when Gruber is like, I'm going to count to three, there will not be a four. <laughs> oh, so cold when he says that. Yeah. And he's and then he shoots like, because Takagi is like, I don't have the code, I can't give that to you. And so he just shoots Takagi in the head. Kills him right yeah. there. And again, 
Theo is pheasant. And it doesn't mm-hmm. affect him. Yeah. And meanwhile, John, John McSane witnessed this whole, this whole scene play out. And it's like the blood splatter on the, on the grass. Yeah. And, and he has a moment afterwards where he's kind of like beating himself up over the fact of like, why didn't I do anything? Why I could have stopped him if I was just a second sooner. You know, all these things of like, I could have prevented this from happening. But I think at that point, he didn't really understand the magnitude of the situation. So it's best that he, I mean, it's best that he didn't do anything despite someone being killed right in front of him because there are a lot more people there uh, than just who's in that room. And it would have been, it would not have ended well for Mr. McLean uh, had, he, so. had he stopped like- that. Oh, there was something else I was going to say about this this sequence, but now I can't remember what it is. Um, it's, oh, oh, Rickman. Alan Rickman has these little ticks that he does as an actor in different movies. Like there are some movies where he'll pick his teeth and I'm like, oh, that's just so great. It's such a random little gesture that he does. Oh, but in this I one, it's his kind of like, I hadn't noticed that. it's like his, his kind of snarl. It's like, he'll say the line and then he'll like, he'll have like this gap in his mouth where he's just kind of like, I can't do it on camera. I, I look really stupid doing it, but it's like, he leaves his mouth partially open. Like he's still like letting the word escape. And it's just kind of like, did you understand what I just said? Uh, do you understand what he just said? <laughs> cool. Interesting. I, yeah. I had okay. I had noticed that detail, so yeah. I feel like I'll have to keep an eye out for that whenever I rewatch Die Hard again. I'll have to yeah. keep an eye out for that chick. It's it's always fun. It's always fun for me just to watch actors' little quirks and stuff. And when they use them, when they overuse them, and when they use them sparingly. Uh, <laughs> while he's howling, I'll take a tangent. Because uh, one for me is, I think I think Denzel Washington is an incredible actor. Just an incredible actor. So good at everything that he does. And over my shoulder, the dog is howling at times. But he has these, he has these tics. He has these Denzel Washington mannerisms that you always kind of see in his characters. It's kind of like a like a head turn and like a like a, just a gesture on his face. When he did the tragedy of Macbeth, it feels like the whole movie he goes without doing any Denzel Washington mannerisms. He's like a completely blank slate. And then until he gives his like final speech, and then it just comes out perfectly. It's like he knew exactly when to Denzel a Denzel part. Um, and I just always think that actors are really interesting when they know when they know of their tics and know how to use them to like a point of effectiveness. And Rickman is just like top of the list with that. Interesting. I I haven't seen the tragedy of Macbeth yet, but I do want to see it sometime as a Denzel Washington fan. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a really good one, especially if you like if you like Shakespeare. Uh, it's a very um, dark and moody interpretation of Shakespeare. So, ton of fun. Ooh. Well, not not fun, but I, I liked it. I had a good time. <laughs> and then, and then they hear John Gruber and Dominion. They hear John from the office, but he manages to evade them. And he's hoping Argyle heard the shots, but nope. We cut right to Argyle, just talking to some sweetheart on the phone and sitting next to the big teddy bear that John bought earlier, and and there's music, slang, and the limo. 
So he's just busy. He's distracted for the moment. Just having a great time. <laughs> just Completely oblivious to what the hell is going on in the plaza. Just having a blast, that Argyle. <laughs> and then for the villain side of things, basically Cheryl has a plan to break the lock to the vault, and he can handle most of them, but the seventh lock will be the difficult one. That's the electromagnetic seal. And we don't know how it's going to be handled quite yet, but we'll learn later what happens. So that's the plan. And then John, for his part, sets off a fire alarm on the floor that he's on, and this is one of the floors that's under construction. So he sets off the fire alarm, but then, oh no, the fire trucks, they, they're starting to arrive, but then they turn away after Eddie, one of the minions who's at the front desk, pretending to be a security guard, he tells them, oh, it's just a false alarm. And when I was watching that, I was like, no, I was like, I was like McSane in that moment. I was like, no, yeah. no, you're so what close. What are you doing? What are you doing? Like, I feel like that's against protocol. Like, I feel like they are still supposed to check out the site. But I mean, since he is a security guard, he probably has some kind of pat or, or, or is playing the security guard, probably has access to some kind of like, I don't know, maybe passcode. I don't know. But it, it feels I like that really breaking protocol on the on the behalf of like the police department or, or fire yeah. department it's like they still need to come check things out but you know yeah. that's that's fine detail picking um i did want to say no it's gone i, I had oh, a thought and it just vaporized as i was oh, talking no. so that's always fun <laughs> oh and now tony is up on this floor and when he was like i promise i won't hurt you i was just like bullshit Mm-hmm. And even, yeah, he, t- he comes around the corner and just fires away his gun. And it's like, yeah, yeah of course he's going to try to kill McClane. And then the two of them get into a brawl. The ends with him tumbling down the stairs and Tony breaking his neck. So now John is going to dispose of him. And he tries, to, he tries to squeeze his feet into Tony's shoes. But he's like, nine million terrorists in the world. And I got to kill one with feet smaller than my sister. And he kicks <laughs> Tony's shoes away. <laughs> it's uh, so good it's so good because it's like there's there's a stress involved to him not having any shoes on we're like how is he gonna do this with no shoes on and then it's like oh thank god he killed somebody maybe he can get some shoes nope the shoes are too small so he's still barefoot through this yep. whole thing yep. and then like good uh, uh, kudos to the actor who played Tony because like mm-hmm. He, when he is, like, neck is broken and he's at the, the bottom of the stairs, like, the the blankness of his face is chilling. Yeah. Just chilling. It's like, oh my god, did he really kill that guy during this movie? But, oh, no, it's like, okay. I, that's just a good, like, completely blank face. Uh, yeah, definitely, it's a good, definitely. good scene. Then, McSane sets up Tony in the elevator and then sneak out of it himself and sends up the elevator. So when it opens up and the whole on the floor where everyone is being holding, where the criminals are holding the office workers hostage, the elevator opens up with Tony's corpse and his shirt reads in red permanent ink, now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. And he's wearing a Santa hat, too. Christmas Again, movie. That, yes. Christmas movie. That, that's what I meant. It's like, yeah, now you've got the Christmas theme going on with this moment. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, damn, that's a, that's a quite dark too. Oh, the twisted for the movie. So so good, like such a good moment. <laughs> and John is spying on them from above, like from above the elevator, and he is seeing Hans 
like Hans Gruber and Carl, and he writes their names on his wrist. And I really appreciate that, like when he's writing, when he when he does that with his wrist, because I feel like, I feel like you know you would have to do that, like if you when you collect the names, it's like okay, remember, you know, write them down because in this situation where your adrenaline is pumping high and you're panicking and you're stressing out, I'm like. I'm not sure if I'd be able to remember everyone's names in that situation. Yeah. I bet I have to write them down. Whereas other movies, typically, you don't really see people do that. Again, because they're like the superheroes. They don't need to write down their names. They can just right. remember them in the in their brains or maybe just, you know, blast the minions. But hey, you know what? This guy, John McClane... Well, they just don't care. But John McClane, he needs to remember the names. Like, hey, you know, yeah. it can help him if he's listening over the radio. He knows he's talking mm-hmm. to who. Again, it makes him feel more human. Yeah. Yep. So then he sneaks off the elevator, goes into a hallway, passing by that hallway with the, the nude woman, the magazine craft. Again, why is that there? Says hello to it. <laughs> and Carl wants revenge for his brother, for Tony. And then Hardy realizes John is causing trouble for the criminals and just worries Harry. Harry is like, well, what? He's going to mess things up. And it's like, well, Harry, you know, you do, you, you, you pour your own crap later on. <laughs> it's almost like you can kind of start to feel the wheels turning in that scene. Because he's yeah. so sleazy, he's already trying to think of a way to get himself out of it. In, in fact, probably more get himself out of it than get anyone else out of the situation. I don't think he cares that anybody else is in trouble. I think he just cares oh. that, oh, booby, my, my Christmas is being ruined. I got to get out of here and get myself some more Coke, you know, something like that. So he's just he's just trying to think of a plan to get out of there. Yeah. And now John uses a walkie-talkie to call out for help. But oh no, Gruber and company are able to hear it on their own walkie-talkie. And so John, so as, and so they're able to hear, hear John as he's talking to the police on the other end, who disbelieve him initially. And this leads to the, an, an interaction that goes, attention, whoever you are, this channel is reserved for emergency calls only. And he responds, no fucking shit, lady, this sounds like I'm ordering a pizza. <laughs> <laughs> One of the iconic quotes. Yeah, yeah. Listen, like that whole scene is a little frustrating, just because it's like, and, and I mean, you understand, because it's like they don't know, they don't know what's going on, they don't know no. who they're talking to. Like, clearly, they don't know, and it's like we, as an audience, we know exactly what's happening. So it's like that they're giving him pushback is so frustrating, because it's like. He is doing the best that he can to try and figure a way out of this situation. Just yeah. help the man. Do yeah. your job and help him. No, nope. uh, this is reserved for emergency people, emergency discussion only. This is an emergency. This is an emergency. Although they do hear the gunfire in the background. When she has to obey the gunfire, they do hear that. So then it's like, wait, what is going on over there? Right, right. Yeah, it's like, oh, uh, maybe we should do something. <laughs> Yes, and then this is when we introduce a new character, Sergeant Al Powell. Now we've got Reginald Val Johnson coming in as he buys a lot of Twinkies from a convenience store. Then he gets called out to investigate a code 2 at Nakatomi Plaza, which happens to be just a few blocks away from him. Again, like, you know, another great character, lots of love for him. And something, yeah. I, something I feel like I actually should have noted earlier is that this movie actually does aged pretty well in terms of how it represents, in terms of how it gives representation 
for black men because mm-hmm. like this is a late '80s movie, and we've got like we've got, we've got Powell and Argyle here, who are you know able to have their heroic moments to to be to save the day, and they feel like you know flesh out characters, people who have their own full lives, and then even like even Theo. Now say if Theo was the only black character in the movie, then if like well that be fall into racist stereotyping. But instead, it's like, oh, we've got a couple heroic characters here. We've got, you know, we've got Steel here on the villain side. And even for him, like, again, he's my favorite, he's my favorite minion out of the whole yeah. group. And, like, he feels like such a, a nuanced character. And mm-hmm. it's just, it feels interesting to watch this movie give a kind of positive representation. Again, for yes. a late 80s movie. Yes, absolutely. Because I feel like if you are to have a character of another, uh, a race outside of being a white character, in these movies during these time period, especially when they are playing a villain, they're going to accentuate every stereotype they possibly can for that character. So it's, yeah. it's kind of nice here to kind of see not only like uh, uh, African-American heroes, like the, the, the good guys that are, that are there on display, but also a villain who is not like the run of the mill amped up to a thousand kind of villain. It's, it's, it's nice to kind of like, or a, 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 you know, stereotypical version of what this, what this character would be. I think that's, that's really nice to kind of see that. And it's, it's a, the henchman as a whole, like there are a couple, which, you know, I don't know if that's really a, a plus to have multiculturals represented by the villains. Like, Oh, so there's, there's a little, there's kind of like, there's representation in this movie, but a lot of them are the villains. But I think, too, you do have that mix of, like, you know, there are people of other races that are outside of white characters that are being represented as the good guys, as the protagonists in this movie. Um, and at that time, I think that's totally against what what, what was in the norm for, for movies yeah. to have. So, yeah, I, I, I agree. I like your sentiment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, I, okay, I guess I do, I do feel like we also do have the, the two Asian Johnsons who come in later, and yes. I guess like so. And one of them is black, so that's he's actually credited yeah. as Little Johnson. There's Big Johnson, and then there's Little Johnson. And yeah. I guess maybe he's like the character. He's I guess the, the two Johnsons are maybe the more compared to other characters more thinly written, maybe I suppose because they get and mm-hmm. he's so late. And I'm like, wait, why are you here? Yeah, that kind of kind of confuses me. They're kind of they're they're kind of like uh, comic relief that sometimes authority figures are stupid. (laughs) Um, I did want to say too what like I said earlier that I was I talked about how much I love the cinematography in this movie when uh, Officer Powell leaves the gas station, walks to his car to look at Nakatomi Nakatomi Plaza. That is a beautiful shot where it's him looking and seeing Nakatomi Plaza in the distance. Like oh. It's just it little is. things like that that are re- that really stand out as something really, uh, really cool about this movie. It is definitely, definitely. Then we cut back up to John uh, on the shot of the rooftop as he's dealing with a few of Gruber's goons. He passes by the, the nude woman once again in the corridor, heads down as a big vent by planting by, by basically taking taking this big gun that he's got with him, like kind of like planting it up in the entryway and sticking it in there so he can climb down the strap of the gun to make it to another event entry and just shoot. But then the strap breaks and he falls down the, the big vent but manages to grab onto a different event entry. And I'm like, this is terrifying to watch. Oh my goodness. Yeah. 
Yeah, I would just like to say that if I tried to use a gun as like a thing to hold my weight so that I didn't fall, I I don't care what kind of metal the gun is made out of. I would break I would break that gun. Like I am, oh, no. I am far too hefty to do something like that. But it's such a good scene because it's like you get to see his resourcefulness, which I think is super cool. Because yes. it's like you know this is this is a guy that is really like probably far more intelligent than I think we would give him credit for, but yeah. he's really figuring ways out to survive and kind of at the top of his game physically too, because like if I fell, I would die. Like I would, I, yeah. I wouldn't be able to grab onto anything. I would just die. And he was yeah. able to grab like the next little, like, you know, vent that was open. So uh, yeah, it, this is so, it's such a fun, stressful uh, action-packed little sequence of this movie. Yes, and and also he brings he also brings along a lighter too. The lighter that yes. he stole from Tony, and so he lights that up when he's in the end event. And this is when we get another quote where he says, "Come on to the coast. We'll get together, have a few laughs." Laughs. Also, is... he also he also says, "Now I know what a TV dinner feels like," <laughs> as he's crawling through the vents. I love the. We'll get together, have a few laughs. I love that line so much. For me, for a very, very long time, that was the line that really stood out. Like, more so than, of course, the the trademark that we'll get to later. But that was the line that I was just like, ah, that sums up this movie for me. Because it's like, I could have just stayed home. But no, I was going to come out to the coast, have a good time. Nope, I'm in a vent being shot at. <laughs> like, uh, it, it, it just it, sums it up the movie. It drips that sardonic humor. Yeah. Just like, yeah. Uh, 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 that sardonic edge. Uh. Good stuff. <laughs> yeah. Carl also almost finds him when he's poking at the vents above him, like where, right where John is mm-hmm. hiding. But then something else happens is somewhere else. So like he and the other minion go away. And it's like, oh, so it's Carl there. Yep. Then Powell arrives at the plaza. And he looks around for a bit, meets Eddie in the lobby, but doesn't really look around too much before obliviously leaving. And then John gets in a, gets in a fight back in the office where Gruber had killed Takagi, and he ends up killing Heinrich and Marco. Those are the next two minions that he killed. And Marco specifically, that's the kill where he's up on, Marco is up on the table, and John shoots him from underneath. Just like multiple shots. Even a few of them in the groin. It's like, ah, oh dear. They have, like, he says something. I can't remember what the line is that Marco says. Like, uh, where, uh, where he, Marco, before he kills him. Where Marco was like, next time you have a chance to kill someone, don't hesitate. Yes. And then yes. John follows that up by shooting him and saying, thanks for the advice. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's great. That was, that was a great moment. Like, I've seen oh. this movie, I don't know how many times, but when I rewatched it the other night, I actually cheered. I was like, yeah! yeah. <laughs> it's fun when a movie can still do that. Like, when you watch a movie so many times that it's like you kind of know it backwards and forwards, but you still have these little things that pop out to you a different way. Like, I think, that, I think that's something that kind of makes a movie iconic like something that really stands out as you know the the word masterpiece of course is super overused and i don't know that i would use masterpiece to describe die hard it's just not that kind of a movie but i think it is an iconic action movie and i think it's little things like that where it's like oh like the 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 movies that the, the moments that really kind of 
like still make you cheer all these years later, kind of give it that, that credibility. So definitely, yeah, definitely. I, I like tangents, Arthur. I really like. <laughs> so do I, so do I. <laughs> you know, also, I also like how the minions have names too, because mm-hmm. again, it just makes them feel like, feel like people because sometimes you watch these yeah. movies and you're like, oh, the minions are just like goon one, goon two, yes. goon three. Yes. But no, like these people have names. The the credits are broken up by like, you know, people that like, it's, it's, in, it's segmented. Where it's like, you know, you've got like the, the Gennaro family, then there's people at the party, and then there's the terrorist section, where it's like, they ha- all have identities. And I, I just think, you know, it's such a small thing that I think, you know, most people don't, now in the days of Marvel movies, people probably stay through the credits to see stuff like that. But at this time, people aren't staying through credits like they should. There's no respect for the artists of this movie. They're just like, oh, movie is over. That was great. I'm going to go home now. But I just, I think that's a little thing that like really kind of distinguishes that the movie, even for the smaller parts, are still kind of treating everybody with just a little bit of individuality, which, you know, probably wasn't like, I don't, I I imagine they didn't have that grand intention, but I at least feel like there's, there's some, yeah, it's nice. It's a really nice touch. It's still present, you know? Yeah. And then we get back to Sergeant Powell right as he's about to leave. And that's when John throws Marco's body onto the police car. And he shouts out the window, Welcome to the party, pal! Party, pal. And Al <laughs> is just driving away from all the gunfire coming at him. Because now it's, it's Eddie or, you know, terrorists in general. They're like, oh, crap. Now Powell knows. Yeah. And he calls for backup. And then police, you know, they arrive just around the plaza. Oh, also, and, and Powell, he crashes his car. Bumped it up over the curb or something like that. It was like, yeah. Backwards. 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 Up and over. Which which opens up the opportunity for John McClane later on to criticize his driving, which I think is just so funny. Because it's like you're in the middle of this this life or death situation. You finally have somebody on your side, but you, you instantly develop that rapport with that person where you can make fun of them at the same time. Oh perfect. (laughs) <laughs> and then finally John radios Gruber now they, they get to talking directly with each other and it's great when John is like would you like to go for double jeopardy where the score can really change <laughs> and Gruber is just brushing him off right now as a foolish American who gets high off mm-hmm. of thinking he can act like a real life version of Rambo John Wayne or Marshall Dillon and John, John claims he, he was actually always partial to Roy Rogers, and this leads up to Gruber going, do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? And John McClane goes, yippee motherfucker. Oh, man. Like, that's, that's, that's a line that is like, I mean, I, I almost feel like that's one of the first things you think of when you think of this movie, is that line. Absolutely. Like, it has just become Absolutely. something that is like, uh, you know, every so often there's something in pop culture that kind of transcends the thing that it's from. And I almost feel like this is this is the thing that transcends that movie. It's like people know Yippie Kaye motherfucker, even if even if they haven't seen this movie, I feel like they know that line. They might not know what oh. the line is from, but I feel like they've heard that line before. Uh, yeah, it's a thing with the line, and that's why yeah. I'm always disappointed because then it's like, oh, that line does get edited out, unfortunately, and the edited version, yes. the clean version of this movie, and it's like, no, you gotta you, no. you gotta keep that line in. I don't care if it's Believe edited. It. To, to delete the spell word. Give them, give them a TVMA 
just so they can say that line. <laughs> and again, like I said before, it, it does give the lens on like yes, well, you know, wild, you know, Wild West movies having an impact mm-hmm. on, as I said, on as I said before, American culture and masculinity and just yeah. how John McClane does kind of like fit into that you know, that stereotype of, like, a Wild Western, like, oh, you know, being the man who's saving the day and, you know, alone, you know, like, like a lone ranger, like, you know, just a, a loner, just, like, saving the day by himself, getting up, getting up his gun, you know? Imagine if he just had a horse to, to hop onto. Yeah. Trotted throughout the building. <laughs> he would, too. Like, he totally would. Like, he'd oh, yeah. just be this, this horse-riding, like, maverick going through the building taking out these bad guys. <laughs> and then just when we have a brief cut to the news channel as as reporters are delivering the nightly news and we have the introduction to reporter Richard Dick Thornburg as he begs his boss to let him borrow the van and cover the plaza story. And we'll get we'll cut a we'll cut a few more times to that whole subplot throughout the movie. And I'm like, again, really, do we need this? I do feel like <laughs> As much as I think the movie runs along pretty tightly, it's stuff like, it's like maybe this, and then the Asian Johnsons. I feel like they feel they do feel more extraneous compared to the rest of the plot we've got we've got going on. Yeah, yeah, I I would I would be inclined to agree. I do think that there's there's some purpose to it later on, but it does feel like there's a lot of extra. Yeah, like it's because of the news report that then Gruber mm-hmm. learned about about Don McClain and the McClain family yeah. and, and Holly, the connections between them. But I feel like it's, could you could you achieve that through a way to cut out the whole yes. subplot, maybe? Yes, or tighten it. Tighten yeah. it where it's just, it doesn't matter. Like, it's, it, we, don't, we don't need to necessarily know the reporter. Even though it's a fun little diversion, we don't okay. need to know uh, uh, about William Atherton's character. Uh, yeah. Or uh, the other reporter, you know, we don't really need to know anything about them. Yeah. And then Gruber realizes Heinrich's bag is missing, and that bag has a detonator. So it's like, uh oh, what's going on? Don has it. And then also at this point, Theo has cracked three locks. Mm-hmm. So then, Don and, and Powell make contact over the radio. Important to note that Don refuses to give out his name over the line, and he dons the alias of Roy. Because remember, like Don McClain, you know, we got to keep that hidden for now because it will get revealed later, later on, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But because, and remember, like this line, like Gruber and the other minions can't hear it, unfortunately. It's like, it's like yeah. an open, an open comp line. And Powell tells him to let the police just do their job, handle these terrorists. Then we have the arrival of Deputy Chief of Police, Dwayne T. Robinson. He comes in here. I think we had a moment with him earlier. I think, was, wasn't he the one who heard Powell call for backup? I think when he was, he was sitting remember, at the desk. You, was, was that him? Yeah. Yeah, you might be right. I don't, I don't remember. I, I don't just remember. remember. I just love that it's uh, the, the detective who shows up on the scene is the principal from the Breakfast Club. Yes, yes. Paul Gleason. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. Just kind of like carrying on the idea that this guy is just an asshole, no matter what job he has. <laughs> well, because yeah, even here, he is so suspicious of John, and he's like, he could be a fucking bartender for all we know. And I will <laughs> right. say, to his credit, I will say, hey, you know what? He doesn't really have any evidence that McLean is is an ally. Um, he really doesn't yeah. at this point. Yeah. 
funny, you know, it's, hey, maybe he is just some random guy who's just up there causing troubles, you know. So I will, mm-hmm. I, it's just, again, like you said before, frustrating because we know McClane is helping out. Yeah, but they don't know. Like, how, how could they know right now? He's, he hasn't revealed his name or anything like that, so. And, uh, see, okay, that would be also be suspicious as well. If, like, if you're not telling me your name, it's like, okay, but why? Like, what do you have to hide? I, I'd be thinking that. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Then we cut to a scene with Holly meeting with Gruber to represent hostages and talk about how, like, oh, there's a pregnant woman out there. She needs a comfortable couch to lie on. Also, the hostages need to visit the bathroom and groups. And I like this little, this little cutaway to her. It shows how, hey, you know, under, under pressure, she's trying to remain calm and trying to run things smoothly for her fellow co-workers. Yep. Trying to remain collected here against Gruber. The line of, like, who put you in charge? And she's like, you did when you killed my boss. Like, she's under control. She knows. Yeah. <laughs> she knows how to She knows how to handle herself with men who are consumed with power. Like, I feel like that's what that indicates, is that she's, she's handled this before in a very, you know, less severe situation. But I feel like she is good under pressure where she can, like, I know how to deal with Man babies, pretty, pretty much. <laughs> and there's a moment where she briefly glances at the face down family photo. And Gruber actually, like, Gruber does kind of like look back and wonder like, what, yeah. what's he looking at? But he doesn't take out the family photo just yet. Right. So like, he was looking back there and she also identified herself as Miss Gennaro. Mm-hmm. Yep, that was, that's a good, again, it's like another thing that's been set up where it's like, oh, well, we're supposed yeah. to feel this way about it because Bruce Willis's character feels this way about it. But yeah. meanwhile, at this point in the movie, it's like, oh, well, that was a really good idea on her part because now she can identify as this. So there's not really that connection between the two of them yeah. Yeah. for outsiders just yet. Yeah. Then we have a quick moment cutting to Argyle as he finally finds out through the TV in his limo that terrorists have, uh, are holding Dr. Tommy Plaza hostage. So now he finally like, what the hell is going on here? Yeah. <laughs> and well, also because he also and he also tries to escape but he's trapped in the parking garage because remember mm-hmm. CL shut it down earlier so he just yeah. has to stay in here for now and I like when he's, when he's riding in the front seat and he looks at the teddy bear in the back and he tells the teddy bear like shut up <laughs> yep <laughs> and then the SWAT team now we've got the SWAT team planning to storm into the building and Robinson is thinking there might not be any hostages here. Maybe John is just causing all the trouble. And Howard is the one who's trying to be like, no, he's a. I think he's a good guy. Let's try to start. Let's try to stand up for him. Let's trust him. It's uh. it's already, they've already kind of established a little bit of ally, uh, you know, an alliance there, and trust for for uh, uh, you know, Officer Powell um, that he has for John McClane because it's like there's just too much that he's been uh, privy to already so early in the situation to know that. McLean is one of the good guys, or or Roy is one of the good guys. So yeah. it's nice to kind of know that you've got McLean in the building trying to trying to save things his way, and then you know Powell is on the ground trying against these other forces who are just completely consumed with like, no, we're we're gonna figure this out. We're gonna go in with brute force and and get everybody out of there. That's clearly the wrong answer, and the only one smart enough to know that is a beat cop. Who's like, you know, uh, not, you know, had a had a tragedy. Well, we'll get to that later. Uh, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Yeah. So yeah, it's just I think it's I think it's really nice that they incorporated 
you know, gave uh, uh, John McClane an ally on the ground. Uh, I think yeah. that kind of helps helps make this movie as memorable as it is. I, I don't know that you'd have the same movie without uh, Officer Powell. Absolutely, yeah, he, he, he's crucial. And then there's a moment where as the SWAT team is preparing to come in and then the goons inside the building are preparing to fight back, I love the moment when Uli, one of the goons, he manages to find time to grab a crunch bar. And again, we need more of these human moments. Someone just, just yeah. this guy in, in, this, in the terrorist group, he's like, hey, you know what? In the middle of committing all this violence, I gotta just grab a snack. Listen, I'm hungry. We've, we've been doing this for a while. I, I need something. I've got low blood sugar. I gotta get something to, to boost that up a little bit. <laughs> and even just the way that the actor is just like crouching behind the, behind like the desk. And he looks, like he mm-hmm. takes a moment to just like look. Just like look. Look at the candy again, and then finally he reaches in. I just love that <laughs> love little pause there to like inspect the candy and then reach in and grab it. So good, so good. And then finally, they send in this big armored vehicle to try to to try to break into the building. Even though Robinson is like, well, because the goons shoot at the cops' lights to make it harder for them to see. So then even Robinson is like, hey, call them back. They don't. The SWAT officers don't even have a light to see what's going on. But they just ignore yeah. Robinson, and, and they just send force to armored vehicle, there's gunfire at the four officers who try to break in on foot, and then two of the minions, Alexander and James, set up this bazooka launcher and fire it at the armored car, blowing it up. And, and that's when CO goes, oh my god, the quarterback is toast. <laughs> and the way that he says it, too, is just so gleeful. It's like, oh, the quarterback is toast. It's such a uh, such a great line, such a great delivery. Yeah, he's, uh, he's so good. Theo is so good. <laughs> and then they fire the bazooka again under Gruber's instructions, even after John is trying to beg Gruber over the radio to give mercy. But now they shoot the armored car again, assuredly killing the officers in there. And then McClane holds some C4 down in an elevator shaft setting off this big explosion in the lower levels of the building that kills Alexander and James. Just like, oh my... And, and, and then Swanberg, he's just wowed by this sight. He's like, eat your heart out, Channel 5. <laughs> they got like, the footage. They got the shot. They got the shot. <laughs> That's all that matters. Yes. And then another brief cut back to the news as it announces that the radical West German folks free movement had actually expelled Gruber from its organization. So just to like, give a little more background on, on Gruber there. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, not, it's not even necessary really to know about that, but it's still it's nice to know about right. the past there. So it's like, you almost, and maybe I'm just completely not remembering this, this part, but it almost feels like, yes, the idea is this robbery now, so that he could like kind of get off scot-free and have all this money, but is there any part of this where you feel like maybe this whole thing was staged because Grover like wants to prove to somebody that he should be put allowed back into these groups? I don't know. That was just a thought I had while you were explaining. You know what? Right before you said that, I was actually like the thought was popping into my head there. The same thing. I'm like, maybe, maybe he feels like he wants to be like, hey, look at me. I can, I can do this shit. Come on, right, right. See my like, words. I'm, I'm a. I'm a top-notch villain. I should be in this organization. What are you doing? 
and then we're back to McLean as he tells Powell about the C4 he used, and Robinson grabs the radio and tells John they don't need his help. But John really just gives him a piece of his mind there. And then after Robinson calls him an asshole, McLean is like, Asshole? I'm not the one who just got butt on national TV, Dwayne. <laughs> Man. <laughs> again, like again, that 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 humor coming in. It's just the kind of like, like right. I'm trying to think of the best way to express it. He is so mad. Bruce Willis is so mad. His character yeah. is so upset of everything happening that he's just like indignant. I'm on your side. <laughs> you know, like ah, yeah. come on, let me help. Yeah. Oh. Even Argyle cackles at this when he's hearing it over his <laughs> over his uh, the radio. And what I think is really cool in that moment, too, is because it's like, you know, all Argyle knows of John McClane is that he's this guy who's a cop who, like, is is uh, grumpy. <laughs> like, it's really all he knows. He doesn't know that he's a badass cop. He doesn't know anything about the way that he, like, uh, goes about his job. And now Argyle gets this chance to kind of hear him over the radio. And I almost feel like there's kind of like... Um, you know, it's not like the movie comes out and says, Argyle has a newfound respect for John McClane in this moment. But I think because of the reaction to the line that was said, Argyle's like, oh my gosh, I was driving around a badass. Yeah. I am fully on board. I'm glad I'm here. I hope he gets out of this okay. Yeah. Argyle is like, yes, this is so cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I also appreciate when Powell is telling John to hang in there. And they also have a, a touching little chat also in this part of the movie was talking about their kids. Like, hey, you know, we're, we're both family guys. We're both family men. Isn't Powell, like, isn't Powell's wife pregnant with their first kid? Is that right? Yes, 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 that's yeah. right. So it's like, oh, man, this, there's a, there's that bonding there where it's like, you know, McLean and John and, and Holly have two kids and Powell is having his first. And it's just like, oh, you know, really, when it comes down to it, like, we're just guys, like, trying to do the best for our family. And it just so happens that the job that we're involved in sometimes gets a little extreme. So yeah. we've got to try and figure out how that we can survive to make it back home to this family that we care about to keep providing for them. Again, like the Christmas stuff. See, again, this is like, it falls yeah. into like the Christmas values of family, you know? Yeah. Time. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. And now, this is when Harry, Harry Ellis, tries to negotiate with Gruber and acts like his white knight, as he calls himself. By claiming he can hand over McLean. Because when John and Powell were talking, that's when Gruber interrupts. He'd be like, hey, I know your name now. And the whole interaction, when Harry goes into the office, I love the way that, the way that Gruber reacts to him. You can just tell, Gruber's just like, who the fuck does this moron think he is talking to me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, who are you? Like, you are, what, what, what do you think you're going to accomplish? And then it's like he realizes, oh, you're that kind of a person. You would sell your mother out for an advantage. I get that. Well, it's, it's time to play ball with you. I know what you, yeah. I know what your values are, and I'm going to uh, utilize that to my advantage. And, and the thing is, Harry truly believes he can pull this through. Because he's just like, he comes in mm -hmm. being so arrogant. He's just like, hey, hey, come on. I can do this. I can do this yeah. deal. Let's just understand each other here. You know, I, yeah. I get it. You're, you're, you're here holding us all hostage. And I, I specifically love love part when, when Gruber goes, when, when Adam Rickman is like, how perceptive 
it's just like you know it's like just like again how cold that line is and just like how like you can feel the condescending layers underneath yeah. it again it's just like yeah, he is annoyed you think you you Harry, you think you're so smart but you are just uh-huh. a dummy and i can't believe i have to deal with you yeah. Oh, yeah. I, it's, it's a good, it's a good moment. <laughs> I must admit, on, on a side note, I recently, I was recently playing Jackbox with a few friends some time ago, and yeah. on one of these games, this this whole question that came up, like, oh, compare your friends with the famous movie villains. So we would have to, like, so we would be like comparing each other to the famous movie villains, and yeah. one of the movie villains was Hans Gruber, and everyone and my friend group. Voted for me as being Hans Gruber, <laughs> which I will say it does make sense because I feel like a the other villains I forget who they were I feel like I feel like Voldemort might have been one of them, but I just remember mm. the other villains not really like even I was like as eh, the other villains don't really fit for me. Hans Gruber was the only yeah. one where like where it stands out as being like yeah, I can see that character being being compared to me just because I consider myself to be very like a intelligent, also articulate, kind of like a fine. Yeah well-read person so i feel like i get everyone in the group like probably six people voted for me as being Hans grouper that means you would be the brains of the operation you're if if your group wants to put together a heist you're the guy with the plan <laughs> yes yes and I, it's my it's my honor it's my honor <laughs> so then harry also has a coca-cola poured out for him in a glass while he tells ron to reveal where the detonators are, or oh, the terrorists will kill them. And Harry just thinks this is all fake, by the way. Even just like with, with the grin he has in his face, he's just like, oh, what's this saying around here? You're not gonna actually kill me. You're just, I'm just saying this to threaten John, make him feel scared. Yeah. And also, he's pretending to be John's longtime friend, too. He just threw in that extra detail. But they've yeah. never even met before tonight. And John is like, no, Harry, tell them the truth. We don't know each other. They're gonna kill you. Right, right. <laughs> and finally, finally, Harry realizes how real this shit is as he nervously drinks his Coke. By the way, it's funny how he drinks a Coca Cola as in like Coke and also snorts Coke. Yes. <laughs> he's Listen, he's a big Coke fan across the board. <laughs> but yes, he's shakily, nervously drinking the, the Coke as Gruber picks up the gun and shoots him. It's like. Damn, things getting more serious now. And the other co-workers, like, they're all panicked now. The other co-workers are like, oh, no, someone else got killed. And Robinson is now even more pissed off as as on, you know? I'm going to interrupt for just a second. Listen, if there's a character that it's okay that they get killed off, I'm sorry. I think it's okay that Harris gets killed off. True, true. We're trying to sacrifice John that way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He can he can go as long as, as John as long as John McClane still survives a little bit longer, get get him out of here. <laughs> yeah. But now Robinson is even more pissed off at John, thinking he could have saved Harry. And then Gruber opens up a comms line with Robinson and makes a demand that the U.S. uses its connections to free terrorists around the world, including those from the Asian Dawn movement, and. When he was listing off these organizations, it was so hilarious. And even when he lists off Asian Dawn, I love how Carl is just sitting there and he's like, and he's just like, he mouths Asian Dawn? And Hans responds, I read about them in Time Magazine. <laughs> Coming up to the radio. But he's just like, he's just so, so smoothly bullshitting 
just what mm-hmm. it is at this point. It's like, hey, free these terrorists and ask for helicopters so we can take hostages with us to LA International Airport. You know, again, to make it be like, oh, we want the terrorists to be free, even though, no, we just want the money at the end of the day. But it's just like, I love that. Yeah. So smooth, yeah. Cooper. It's just, it's just a ploy. It's just a, a diversion. It's like, oh, we have demands. No, we don't. We don't really have demands. Like, we're, we're stealing the money and making it look like we, spoiler, we, we died in the process. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then at that point, CL is down to the sixth lock. Mm-hmm. And he's like, seventh lock will take a miracle, according to him. And then we cut back to a moment with John and Powell, where, because John had assumed he was out on the streets, not a dusty rocky. And, you know, we'll get back to that later, why Powell is, why he is at that point. Yeah. And then cut to the news, as it also gets interviewed, to talk about the Helsinki Syndrome. And I'm like, okay, because it's basically, it's basically Stockholm Syndrome, mm-hmm. but why did they change the name yeah, from I Stockholm don't... to Helsinki? Why? And it also has us mix up, you mentioned earlier. It was like, oh, Sweden yeah. and Finland. But why? Why do you think yeah. they did that? Any thoughts? I'm not really sure. Like, I don't know if, I don't know if, I guess, the history of the terminology, like if it was, if the Stockholm Syndrome is something that's, you know, not not new by any means, but like was developed after this time as the, the I guess, verbiage for it. But I don't know. I, I wondered that same thing too, because it is, it's the same thing as Stockholm Syndrome. Why call it, yeah. you know, Helsinki Syndrome? I've never once in my life heard it referred to as Helsinki Syndrome. Yeah, so it was it was coined in 1973. Oh, yeah. sure. Huh. Yeah, that's really weird. It was coined after, after a bank robbery in Stockholm. Mm. Yes, that's right. That's mm. right. Stockholm Syndrome, like, it's interesting to hear about that because that has largely been dismissed now as being pseudoscientific. And yeah. even not just now, but even, like, I remember years ago, because I remember hearing about how people would use that to talk about Beauty and the Beast. About how, like, oh, yeah. Belle is suffering from Stockholm Syndrome. But then I remember hearing right. about how it was like, oh, wait, Stockholm Syndrome is actually still scientific. It's not really something you should use to talk about Beauty and, Beauty and the Beast in that fashion. And that apparently it's actually, like, there's actually misogyny baked into it. Do you know about the origin sure. of Stockholm Syndrome? No, no, I, I, I don't. I don't know about the, like, I know about the... Um... You said a bank robbery that there were hostages involved, and then the hostages ended up turning. Like I always associate, for some reason, I always associate Patty Hearst uh, with Stockholm Syndrome because I feel like it's similar, similar time period, similar vibes. Though not the same thing, though. Even when I look up Stockholm Syndrome on Wikipedia, there is an article about it. It does mention Patty Hearst here oh, in sure. this part. But basically, what just what happened was that there was a woman who was one of the hostages who was being held hostage, mm-hmm. and she had actually testified that the robbers, she was like, oh, the robbers who were holding us hostage were actually taking care, better care of us than the cops outside. Because she was testifying sure. that the cops were actually being incompetent to the point where one of the robbers had actually tried to protect her when the cops were, sh- were trying to shoot down the, the robbers. And in the process, yeah. the cops weren't really being careful about not shooting the hostages. They were just like, not being careful about collateral damage there. So when the woman was giving this testimony, then the psychiatrist came in and was just like, oh, it's Stockholm Syndrome. She's just, she, she's grown this bond with her people who are holding her hostage, criminals, and so we should just dismiss her testimony. Also, yeah. as on the fact that she's a woman, so of course they'd be like, oh, well, it's a woman. You can dismiss, you can dismiss her words. And it's just very, it's, it's really interesting to read about the history of Stockholm Syndrome there and how it can be used yeah. to dismiss testimonies there. 
very insane. Oh yeah. I, I, even now, it's, oh, wow. even now it's been trend, even now it's been trending with like with Palestine and how Hamas has been treating the hostages, and you can also yeah. make similar connections there with like how Israel is being so terrible, is treating Palestinians terribly, so then Hamas treats them yeah. better with providing the hostages medical care and food, and it's like it's very intriguing to read about all of that. Yeah. Oh yeah. So then after that. Then the FBI arrive at the plaza in the form of two Agent Johnsons, and they're like, we're taking over this operation. And Powell is continuing to stick up for John, saying like he, he's like, he's the reason why we have seven, not twelve terrorists to handle. And yeah. I do find I still so, find it funny how like the Johnsons are credited as Big Johnson and Little Johnson in the cast. Yeah. Oh, is it Big Johnson is uh, Robert Davi from the, the Goonies? You know, various other things, but I always remember him from the Goonies more than anything else. One of the oh, Fratellis. Oh. <laughs> I, still need, I still need to see that, Goonies. Oh, wow. Okay. It's, uh, it's, it's a very funny movie, but I, I think that's one that also has some moments, maybe like this one a little bit, where it doesn't quite hold up as well as, you know, for, for newer audiences as it did for audiences that grew up kind of with it. I, I yeah. do wonder if a part of my love for it is nostalgia-based, but that's okay. Yeah, I got that. I got that. <laughs> and then cut back to Gruber. As he ends up while searching around the building, runs into McClane and pretends to be a hostage, putting on an American accent. And they take a moment to just pause and smoke. And the American accent... What do you think about about the American accent there? Because I was like, is it supposed to sound rough? Yeah, I, like it's funny because it's like, I'm just like, yeah. There's no way I ever would have been able to tell that this voice is the same one that I was listening to over the walkie-talkie. Like even with that bad American accent, it's bad. It is a bad American accent. Like it's just, just it's like. I'm trying you to know, it's out. a British guy trying to do an American accent. <laughs> is it is it intentionally bad, or, or is it just bad? Like, was Alan Rickman trying to do an American accent, and it was just bad? I can't tell. Uh, you know, that's a good question. I think character-wise, of course, he's trying to make it good. He's trying to make it convincing. But yeah. for Alan Rickman, I almost think it's, maybe for the actor perspective, it could be trying to just really play up, oh, I'm an American, like, you know, hear it in my voice that I'm an American. So maybe it, maybe it was his choice to really kind of, like, hammer home the the uh, vocal tics that kind of are very, very American. <laughs> and we also get a shot down at John's blackened feet. Just a reminder that, hey, look at his body. He has been suffering so much over the course of yeah, this movie. He's and, going through it. <laughs> and Gruber introduces himself as Xay, Phil Xay, which matches a name on his directory right next to them. And John does look yep. at it. He's like, okay, so it matches a name there, one of the workers in this building. Hmm. And then he hands, he hands Gruber a gun. And then, of course, when... John has his back turned to him. Gruber holds him at gunpoint. But when he tries to actually shoot him, the gun is empty. It's just like, yeah, even John is like, yeah, of course I, w- I gave you an empty gun. <laughs> I knew it was you. That was a terrible accent. <laughs> <laughs> and a few minions storming the floor, setting off a gunfight that kills two of the henchmen. So it's Fitz and then Franco. Those are the two ones who, those are, those are the two who get killed here. Uh, Carl is also here as well. And Franco, Franco in particular, he's the one who gets killed by getting shot in the kneecaps and he crashes through 
one of the interior windows. And I'm like, damn, the kneecaps. Uh, yeah. <sighs> and then Gruber, knowing about John's bare feet, ordered Carl to shoot all the glass on the floor so John would have to walk all over it. Also, yeah. very convenient to have a bunch of interior windows <laughs> on the floor. Listen, they wanted the they want the office to be like kind of new age, very, very modern, but open so that you can see everything. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of glass, a lot of open office areas. <laughs> We don't, we don't believe in regular walls here. We like glass no, walls. No, no. <laughs> but John is able to sneak out of that area, thankfully. And then we, <laughs> we, have, we have a quick cut back to the news again as, as the same author who was like, oh, the Helsinki Syndrome talks about terrorism. How he's like, oh, terrorism has an equal claim. on like being the, what was it, the last source of democracy? I think he said something like that. Yeah, I, yeah. Like, what is this author think, talking know, about? Right. It's funny because it's like, you know, we when we go back and kind of discuss these scenes, it makes it even more apparent that you're absolutely right. Because I feel like during the news scenes, I probably zoned out more than any other sequence of this movie. I'm kind of like, what were they talking about during that news scene? I don't remember all the news scenes. I think that's when my brain was like, get back to the building. <laughs> I know. It's like... Also, it's also interesting to watch this movie as being a pre-9-11 piece, because I yeah. think before 9-11, I feel like, obviously, it's not, it's not as if terrorism didn't exist before then. There was plenty of terrorism all around the world, a significant portion right. of which was uh, sponsored by the U.S. and by figures like what? by Henry Kissinger. No way. No way. <laughs> who recently passed away, by the way. That was a good day, sir. <laughs> that was a very entertaining day on Twitter to watch so many people being like, "Whoa, <laughs> this genocidal maniac is dead!" Yeah, goodbye, war criminal. <laughs> but, but, but again, like, so to watch this movie, it, it, it's, an, it's interesting in that land. Just be like, I feel like yeah. if something like this happened in Nakatomi Tommy Plaza, it would be massive, right? Again, before nine eleven, yeah, in, in eighty eight, yeah. I think it's, it's a really interesting way because it's like the way that this building is described and this company is described, it's something that's very big, like very internationally known. Yeah. And sure, there are only a few people in there and maybe that has something to do with the coverage that it's receiving, but still there are people and it's still this massive building, this massive organization. And it's yeah. like, it almost feels like there's no national news coverage. There's no like NBC affiliate or ABC affiliate there. It's just the yeah. local news are on the scene. They would they would try to get somebody bigger there, but yeah. you know uh, it's it's the eighties. They don't they think, they. I think it takes a little bit of time, especially for like Gruber. Like if Gruber was once part of this like radical organization, mm -hmm. and then he's also demanding other terrorists get freed around the world. You know, I just feel like yeah, it'd be bigger news. Yeah. Yep. Most definitely. Uh, and then Sean Burke, he ends up getting John's personal info, including his family's home address. You know, we'll get back to that later. We cut back to the hostages as they see Carl bashing his gun, you know, around. He's just like, ah! And Holly just knows John is still alive. And she says, only John can drive somebody that crazy. <laughs> so good. It's so good. It's these two people who have, like, you know, lived a life together and are going through this rough spot, but still nobody knows the other person as well as their partner does. Yeah. And it's like, as much as she is frustrated with them, she still loves him, but knows 
that he is frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's such a great little it's a great relationship moment in the middle of this movie, and they're not sharing you know they're not sharing the scene, so it's just really oh. it's a really well put together little moment there. It is, oh. and then John. Now John crawls into a bathroom with bloody and cut feet, and it's just like, oh my god, this is this is horrible. Oh, if only I'd worn the shoes, or well, even socks at least. Yeah, oh, just watching him pull the shards of glass out of his feet. I get uh, it; it's a movie. It's 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 makeup effects and all of that. But man, they do it so well that it's just like, oh, 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 oh. Uh, feet. Oh my god. Like, oh. I'm sensitive around like feet, stuff yeah. like that. Or just like, oh. Ooh. Yeah. And then Powell tells John over the radio, hey, the cops have a pool going on for you. And John is like, hey, I'll put down 20 for myself. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take that bet. Finally, we get to Powell's backstory. Because John is like, hey, we got you off the street. And it turns out Powell shot a 13-year-old kid who was waving around a ray gun toy. And now Powell is guilt-ridden. He's like, I can't shoot people again. Like, I just can't pick up a gun like that again. And, yeah, so, uh... Oh, okay. So, in this day and age, something like that. I feel like the movie movie definitely does induce it in a way, like, hey, this is heavy. Like, this was definitely tragic. Yes. And this particular day and age, though, when I am, when I personally, I'm just like, after the Black Lives Matter movement, and I've been forced to just pay mm-hmm. so much more attention to police brutality, I'm just like, God damn it, I don't feel comfortable with this. And I yeah. will say, I, I appreciate how it's characterized so that at least Powell does feel genuine remorse for what he did. Right. Like, he, he killed someone. Right. He, he killed a child. Mm-hmm. And it's like, he, and he can't take that back. I appreciate he feels guilt for it because I know there are plenty of officers who would not feel one speck of remorse for their actions. Yeah. But still, yeah. it is still uncomfortable to watch in this day and age. What do you think? Yeah, uh, I absolutely agree. I think the, the, the in the context of the movie, it is portrayed as sensitively as it possibly can be because you have an officer who clearly is guilt-ridden by this thing where he has removed himself from the streets. He is now, like, doing paperwork and, and that kind of a police officer. And there's just the, the 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 actor, Reginald Bill Johnson, is doing a good job of conveying that pain. And, you know, in the context of the movie, it's handled well. But yeah, yeah. if you were to look at it now, in 2023, it would be very difficult to feel the kind of empathy that we do for Al Powell in this movie, like, you know, the, the way that this movie is set up just because of the world around us, you did what you did. Like, and even if you feel remorse, you probably shouldn't just be pushing paper. You should probably should be out of a job completely, like probably like probably in prison or have paid a fine for what you've done. But like, it's, it's very difficult to kind of look at it in the context of this movie and, you know, in the context of the movie, in the like historical context, too, to be like, oh, no, I'm totally okay with this, because you, you can't be. <laughs> you can't be. It's a, um, you know, I think Lethal Weapon, one of the Lethal Weapon movies handles this later on, too. It might be Lethal Weapon 3, where they kind of deal with the cop shooting a kid with a gun, and oh. that being a, a, you know. But I think the in that situation, the the cop 
the, the person who gets killed is actually a criminal. It was just somebody who grew up with like around the family, different, different context. It makes it a whole different discussion, but you know, I, I agree with you. I think it makes it so it's a very complicated matter to look at historically, but I think the movie handles it the best way that it can, if that's kind of a cop-out of an answer. Uh, I, I don't know. I agree with you. Like, as I said before, like, like, it's not horrible. It's like, yeah, you handled yeah. this, you know, I feel like as well as you could. It's still not great. Again, it's just because of the modern that right. we have now. You know? yeah. And I also yeah. should say, like, I feel like it also sticks out because the movie itself has pretty clean morals of right and wrong in regards of, hey, mm-hmm. John McClane is a good guy. He's got our powers supporting him. Andy and Gruber and his terrorists, they're the bad guys. It has a clean sense of yeah. right and wrong there. Whereas if this, if our power, if his backstory pops up and say a, a much grimier movie where the morals themselves are yeah. much grayer, where maybe it is actually yeah. the movie itself, the whole thing actually deals with maybe with police corruption and or incompetent mm-hmm. police in that sense yeah. and the and systemic corruption, corruption in the police system. I feel like in that sense, it wouldn't stick out as much, but because right. of this movie, it's because it's sticking out in this movie, again, with yeah. the moral compass this movie has. But see, if, if it was like a book, if it was like a book, where again, the book has like the cynical, the, the cynical stuff going on. It's like, oh, the terrorists. Yeah. Or like, but wait, the guerrilla fighters who believe they're fighting against a, a bad corporation. If it was in that kind of story, then it's like, okay, doesn't stick out as much because it's, again, morally gray territory here. Right. And I think, I think that this is, I, I hate to, you know, when you love something, you hate to criticize it at all, but I think it's, it's kind of worthy. The movie doesn't feel concerned with that at all. Like it doesn't feel with, it doesn't feel concerned with the morally gray area of this at all. It feels like it is setting this up for a redemption for Al Pal. Like, yeah. Oh, he did this, but it's going to be okay. Just wait until you get to the end He's going to be fine. Just watch. And that makes it where it's a little bit like, oh, this, so we're, we're not quite, in, in the context of the movie, we're handling it the best way we can for the way that the story wants to be told. Yeah. But if we're dealing with it, yeah, if we're dealing with it like, oh, he killed this kid, but wait a second, he's going to be able to be out on the streets again with a gun because he's going to find that strength. To get past the guilt. That's and not really that good. <laughs> he gets a, if I recall correctly, he gets a promotion to, I believe, lieutenant in Die Hard 2. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. 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 Alright, so maybe, maybe I'll criticize the movie a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Again, late 80s movie. You know, it's like yeah. Yeah. the best it can do. Yeah. Historical context. Got it. Okay. <laughs> And as it turns out, this is all part of Gruber's plan because now, now they've hit the final lock, the electromagnetic seal on the wall. And his plan is to have this, what the FBI will do now. They always shut down the power and respond to a terrorist incident, so he knows they'll do that. So he used that tactic as a way to bypass the electromagnetic lock and access the vault. And the FBI, the, the Agent Johnsons, they're like, they tell this poor electrician to be like, hey, lose the grid or you lose your job. And even Robinson, Robinson, the deputy chief of police, even he's skeptical of this plan. And it's like, yeah. when Robinson is skeptical of it, you gotta ask questions. You know you're making a dumb move if, if Robinson is skeptical of your 
decisions. And remember, uh, yeah. he was skeptical earlier about about. Remember, he was skeptical about the SWAT team coming in because after the, the lights had been yep. shot, he was like, "Wait, we should hold back the officers." But they they sent the armored vehicle in anyways. Oh well. Yep. And just <laughs> but no, nope, they go ahead with the plan to shut down the power grid. With, and they're also like, "Oh, it'll also shut down multiple city blocks." So it's yeah. shut down, yeah. not Tommy Plaza. It's a good throwback because I think earlier on in the movie, Gruber says, like, you know, when the police show up, he's like, no, let the police come. I'm waiting for the FBI to get here. It's like he right. knows that the FBI has to handle a terrorist situation. That's why they're 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 trying to, you know, amp up the fact that, no, no, we're terrorists. Re- release these other terrorists because they know that it's like the playbook is to cut off power. Yes. And if they cut off power, that's going to undo this. Electromagnetic you know, lock. Gruber is a smart guy. He plans everything out. Yeah, yeah. Except, so except, good. except for McSane. McSane was a wrench in his plan. Now, yeah. <laughs> Did not expect him to be there. Nope. New York Police Department's finest. <laughs> yes. And now the lock is down. Yay! So now we have an ominous, yeah. slowed down version of <sighs> Ota Roy playing as a vault with all his bonds inside. Finally, opens for the criminals. <sighs> Oh, it's so good. It's such a good moment. Like, I just felt, I almost felt on the verge of tears in that moment, just because I love how it's definitely over the top. Like, so over the top. But the vault cracks open, lens flare, halo, oh, money, 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 and our shots, there's not a good guy in the line of sight there. It's all the villains. And the villains are the one who get this, this glow of like, look what we did. Yeah. Look what we accomplished. Like, how cool is it to have, like, a, a successful villain moment, like, <laughs> filmed like it's a heroic, like, praise? Because the music is playing. Yeah. The, the lights are bright. It's such an interesting, like, I guess kind of a, a antithesis to what we usually see. And I loved it. I just love that moment Definitely. so much. And even the, but even the music itself, it does sound like a darker version of that. Again, yeah. I said for ominous, slow down. Yeah. You know, it's, it's fitting for the moment for the villains here. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, it, it's great. It, it is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then Gruber and Agent Johnson, specifically Big Johnson, the white Johnson, talking on the radio, pretend to be polite about this negotiation. But the FBI is planning to kill Gruber secretly. While Gruber is planning to blow the roof when the helicopter is touched down, giving the terrorists a chance to escape with their loot. By the way, also, one of the agents, I forget which agent it is, it might have been Big Johnson, but one of the agents says, this is Agent Johnson. No, the other one. (laughs) It's such a silly little moment, but man, it's nice to have that kind of comic relief when things are getting tense. (laughs) I will say, yes, yeah, I will say, that is a good moment. As much as I do feel like the Asian Johnsons maybe could have been cut out somehow, that is a good moment. Yep. And we cut back to John as he asks Powell to find Holly and tell her that John realizes he's been an asshole. He should have been more supportive of her when she got successful, and he loves her so much, but she's never heard him say he's sorry. And Powell is like, hey, man, you got to tell her that yourself. That's right. That's right. It's, it's, it's a sweet moment. You know, it's like, hey, you know, this guy, McSane, he's been resting up. He's been a jerk, but he's trying to make up for it. And, you know, I don't mean, it, 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 even though I don't, you know, I may be like, ah, John, stop being such an idiot. But at that moment, it can get me rooting for him. Yeah, it's that, it's that, 
kind of like the pep talk. Like Powell is giving the pep talk when he feels like everything is, you know, McLean feels like it's all done. Like that he's at his, he's at the end of his rope. Yeah. He might not make it out okay. And Powell is like, no, you're going to get through this. You tell her. You tell yeah. her when you get out of here. I'm not going to say anything to her because you're going to make it out okay. Yeah. And at that point, John doesn't, doesn't have his, his, his tank top anymore, by the way. He's just yeah. like a bear yeah. of a body. Again, he is just losing the clothes, getting sweaty and bloody. Oh, my God. And smoky ashes. bloody and dirty and sweaty. We need, uh, we need know, more of this. Uh, Bruce... we, need, we need more of yeah. this. Yeah. Let's see the impact, the toll that this is taking on our heroes. Yes. And then Thornburg cuts back to him because he goes over to Hardy's home and threatens to call the INS on the Mexican housemaid if he doesn't let him and his crew inside for his stupid broadcast. And I, this is another moment where I'm like, oh, I don't know about this. Look, is it realistic for him to do this? Yeah, absolutely, yes. He would call, he would threaten yeah. to call the INS. Hey, are you an illegal immigrant? Hmm, maybe I should call oh. them on you. You want a, you want deportation to happen? But still, it is yeah. very much like, oh, I don't like this. This is a late 80s moment here. Yeah, it's 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 questionable. Uh, <laughs> it's like, you know, and at the same time, too, it's still furthering that notion of, like, the media is bad. Look at the lengths that they'll go to to do this, to get this story, to sensationalize the story. Uh. And it's like, oh. You can't you can't cheer for the media at all, which I think is funny. Uh, this is I'm gonna I'm gonna just gonna say it and not go out on the tangent of it because it's like there's there's the media elements today that I feel like would would completely do something like this. And, and I was like, what? You know, like I was like, what? Yeah, question your question your trust in uh, various things. So yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> then go back to John who looks around and ends up finding C4 strapped like a ceiling and realizing, oh, the roof is rigged to blow. And he tries to alert Powell about the double cross, but Carl finds him and engages him in a fight. I love when Carl is like, we are both professionals. This is personal. Again, yeah. reminding us, yes, he got the vendetta. Yep. It's a good fight, too. Like, it's a good fight scene. It is a physical fight. There's just like rolling yeah. around, punching, and it's like throwing each other around, and it ends up concluding with John hanging him by his neck on this chain and swinging him into a wall, and Carl yeah. is seemingly dead. But yeah, you know, we'll see yep. later on. <laughs> and then we go back to Gruber and Hardy and the other hostages as they all see the broadcast on the TV of Swanberg talking with Hardy and John's kids at their home. And Gruber sees Hardy look at the TV and he gets suspicious. He's like, wait a second. And then he, that's when he picks up the family photo. And John mm-hmm. is there. He's like, oh, John, oh, oh you're, her, you're his wife, <laughs> aren't you, Hardy? <laughs> so now he orders all the hostages to be taken up to the roof. He keeps Hardy with him. Doctor, and meanwhile, the Johnson still coming in with a gunship helicopters. And oh my god, Big Johnson is just like, hey, I'm alright with losing 20 or 25 percent of the hostages, tops. Yes, now, yes, what, what the hell? <laughs> See, collateral damage, what the fuck are you doing here, right? Right, oh, now, see, man. something like something like this. Again, it does happen a lot. Collateral damage. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this but is I, I think, I think yeah. that the movie is, 
is really trying to be like, listen, these guys are the idiots. Like, we don't want to trust these guys. or We don't want to put, you know, rely on them to save the day because they're okay with letting these hostages get out. It's kind of that dichotomy or, or, or you know, I, don't, I, I want to use the big word dichotomy and I don't know if that's the right word, but it's like, it's this, this juxtaposition of, you know, the FBI, the, the, the federal organization who are in charge are incompetent. And this one man, this one police officer is the one who knows the right way to save the day. Yeah. Uh, and I just think it's very interesting because these guys are extreme in their the measures that they take to try and, you know, uh, uh, succeed and it's just it's like oh you guys and again it's not it's not it's not it's not at all unfortunately that's, that's right that's, oh yeah it's, it's a very interesting part of the movie yeah it's a late 80s movie yeah yep yep also also funny when Big Johnson is like just like fucking Saigon eh slick and Little Johnson is like I was in junior high dickhead <laughs> dumb and then back to Don as he goes up to the roof, shoots Uli. Remember Uli's guy who was grabbing for the crunch bar? Well, he's dead now. Yep. Don yep. heads up to the roof where he learns Hardy is in the vault on the 30th floor. He wants everyone here, hey, the roof is big to blow. And then he shoots his gun to divert the hostages, rush them downstairs, and the helicopters mistake him for a terrorist and try to shoot him. And so Don has yep. to tie this fire hose around himself, jump off at just the right moment as Gruber sets off a C4, blows the roof. The explosion destroys the FBI helicopter. Don swings down into this lower level, shoots the glass to make it through the window, and the fire hose. Then the fire hose snaps off, and it falls down, almost yanks Don out of the floor, and he has to undo it so he doesn't get yanked down, and it's just like, Holy crap, there is so much happening here that Don almost died. <laughs> Absolutely absurd that, that this sequence of events would happen the way that it did. Like I can't I cannot imagine that this would actually happen, but god damn is it fun to watch in a movie. Yeah, it oh, is. Man. <laughs> I, I, he's, he's hanging from the strap of his gun earlier in the vent. Now he's using the fire hose. Yeah. Oh. And Robinson, Robinson comments on how they'll need more FBI guys. <laughs> uh. Yeah, you see the helicopter, like, after the C4 is set off, you see the helicopter, like, kind of fall down, like, on fire. And I'm like, yeah. ah, yeah, that's, oh that's what happens, guys. <laughs> and now John is close to Hardy, close by, you know, because Hardy is with, uh, you know, with the other, the other criminals as they break into the vault. And John only has two bullets left, and he sees some tape nearby. Hmm, what would he do? And then, cut to the parking garage, because now Theo is down here. And Theo is posing as, like, an EMT, and he tries to escape with his, you know, his fire department van, driving out of the garage. But Argyle, who again is keeping, keeping track of everything through the limo radio, he sees Theo, and he crashes his limo right into the van. And then he gets out and punches Theo, knocking him out. Although, I didn't think that was the most powerful-looking punch. But whatever. And knocks <laughs> out Theo. He got him. <laughs> By the way, this, this, this interestingly leaves Theo alive. Because, like, he, yeah. he gets knocked out. So it's interesting that yeah. he's left alive. Uh, when Clarence Gillier Jr., the actor who plays Theo, he was asked about this. And he claims that he was the only terrorist who was left alive. But there's a different terrorist, there's a, a different criminal, Kristoff, 
who John punches in the next scene. Do you remember oh. the guy who ran out with the bonds? And then John punches him yeah. as he passes by. He knocks him out. Yeah. We never, like, his, Kristoff's fate is never confirmed. So it's like, maybe right. he's still alive. But if you're like, and I was actually looking this up, apparently Kristoff is the, is the henchman who people tend to forget about the most because he has such a small role. Oh. He's basically, because sure. he spends the majority of his time being a CEO's assistant up on this floor, up mm-hmm. on the vault level. We're not really seeing him do much action anywhere else, so people tend to forget about him. Yeah. But it's possible that he, both he and Theo are the only the only goons who are left alive from this group. Yeah, and it's like, you know, I, I, I never really, I think even Theo, I always forget about that, like, at the end of the movie, he's still alive. Like, and I don't think, you know, you know maybe you want to mentally connect the dots and be like, well, the police probably find out where they're at, so they go in and take them and all of that. But I would hope it's like you don't even, yeah, right. You don't even click, and it's like, oh no, they're still they're still alive. They're still there. So uh, what are we what are we gonna do about these guys? <laughs> yeah, so Argyle, he saved the day there. Yay for him! Then go back to John as he makes his presence known to Gruber and Eddie. Again, Kristoff, he punched Chris, he punched Kristoff earlier, and then Gruber reasons that he needed to make this robbery as dramatic and fiery as, as he made it in order to trick the authorities into believing the criminals had died. Because obviously, you know, they need to do that when they're stealing so much money. Otherwise, the authorities will just keep looking for them. And Gruber forces John to apparently put down his gun. And he says, John is still the cowboy, you know, Americans, you all alike. But this time, John Wayne doesn't walk off into the sunset with Grace Kelly. And John corrects him. That's Gary Cooper, asshole. <laughs> and he and he's also like, you would have made a good cowboy yourself. And Gruber returns the yippee kaye motherfucker line to him. <laughs> nice callback. And then he and John just just laughing away. And then John grabs his service pistol, tapes behind his back, and shoots it at Gruby and Eddie. Killing Eddie and wounding Gruber. So Gruber crashes out a window and then hangs on to Hardy's Rolex. So she's like, she, she could fall out. And remember, that's what the Rolex that Harry gave her earlier yep. and wanted her to show John. Look at the watch, John! Yep. <laughs> so see, now John is here. He finally does see the watch and then unlatches it. <laughs> so Gruber plummets to his death before he can shoot <sighs> him dead or pull Hardy out. Yes, he's dead now. Beautiful. And Robinson, Robinson comments Beautiful. as Gruber falls, I hope that's not a hostage. <laughs> so good. So oh my good. god. So huh. I, I feel like even if it's for like for deaths where people fall in movies, I feel like that's, you know, that's an iconic fall of Summit. It's, you know, there's the thing that it's like, I've heard people say, like, I can't start celebrating Christmas until I see Hans Gruber, Hans Gruber falling out of Nakatomi Plaza. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, I, love I love it. So now the big baddie, he is dead, done for, Victor. and the terror is over. Apparently, mm-hmm. John and Holly <laughs> are down on the ground now. They finally meet Sergeant Powell. There's a moment where John introduces Holly as Gennaro, but then she says McLean. So now it's like, see, see, audience, see, she has forgiven him. He's willing to, you know, she wants to reconcile yeah. with him. One big happy family. Everything's good. It's, it's the way, it's as it should be. <laughs> and look, I will admit, if I were in her position, I would definitely probably be like, John did all this for me. I got to try to stay with him for as long as possible. You know, trying to save me, save yeah. everyone. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I'm feeling that that kind of like, uh, okay, you're you're not that bad of a guy there, John. I'll stick with you for a bit. <laughs> Which then is kind of is kind of funny because then in Die Hard and Die Hard is a vengeance. Then it's like, oh, his life is in a shambles. I think I forget if you're I forget if you're going through divorce proceedings or if you're already divorced by that point in the movie. <sighs> but I, I don't I, I I don't think in the second one. I not, think no, in the second not, one, not second still one. Together. Oh, Die Hard with a Vengeance. Yeah, yep. third yep. one. I think you're right. His life is in shambles. I think they. I think someone even says it. Like, how can how can you manage to save the day and be and be a big hero, but you can't even be a hero in your personal life? Yeah, which is yeah. interesting. Oof. Oof, that's tough. Uh, and Robinson heads in and says, "Like, hey, McClane, you have to answer for all this crap." And it's this murder, property damage, interfering with police business. And I'm like, okay, property damage? Excuse me, I don't think he caused that much damage compared to what Gruber and company did directly. Exactly. He didn't blow up that building. Yeah. Like, Ellis is murder. I'm like, I don't know about Ellis is murder. Again, Gruber shot him. Shot Ellis. Mm -hmm. And then, fine, like, interfering with police business. I can get, I can get that, I suppose. Like, Fine, yeah. but the other stuff, like, eh. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> and, and see, even then, even then, John and Holly just leave right away. But realistically, they would, ha they would have to stay. They would have to answer questions, you know. But as right. a joke, like, even in action movies in general, they never stay to answer the questions. It's just like, no. nope, we get to leave right away. Listen, I, th I, think, uh, I think a detective is going to meet with you afterwards. You're going to have to, listen, I know you've had a hard time, but just a couple more hours... And and then maybe you could go home. We just got to ask you a few questions about this whole thing. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> uh, and then, oh, shit, Carl is here. He's now outside of the building. He's on the ground level. He almost shoots John and Holly. But then Powell gets off three shots to kill him. And that's what we had said earlier. Like, oh, his redemption moment. Yeah. It's like... Yeah, thank goodness. Yeah. Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> Again, it's Powell, it's Vesno, it's Vesno Johnson, so, you know, I feel conflicted, yeah. I find him be charming, but oh, I don't know about this, I don't know. It's, it's a, he's a warm figure, he's a very warm character, and I think, you know, a lot of that is, this movie was after, or no, this movie was before Family Matters, so it's like, I guess kind of, you know, if you, if you've seen this first before ever seeing the TV show Family Matters, it's like he is just this warm police presence. But watching it after seeing Family Matters, like he's Carl Winslow. He is the nicest man. Like you, you have to cheer him on. You can't help it. But you know, removing that, he has done nothing this whole this whole movie except for be a very warm, friendly, kind presence with a sad background of oh, I accidentally murdered a child. But please yeah. forgive me because I was just trying to do my job. And it's like, you know, we forgive him because he's this warm character. And in the end, he saves the day. So a little, uh, little bit of gray area there for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so now finally, finally, the terror is over. Carl is dead. And then Argyle crashes his limo out through the garage gates. And John is just howled, hey, he's with me. Don't worry. It's, it's me. It's with me. <laughs> then Thornburg goes up to John, tries to interview him, but Hardy punches him. And he says yeah. to the camera, Did he get that? <laughs> and John and Hardy, they, they head into Argyle's limo. And Argyle says, If this is your idea of Christmas, 
I gotta be here for New Year's. Punchline! Yes. Boom! <laughs> and we end on the limo, driving off as Ron Monroe's Let us know, let us know, let us know, please. It's a Christmas movie. It's a Christmas movie. Yeah. It opens with a Christmas song. It ends with a Christmas song. Yes. It is a Christmas movie. Yeah. <laughs> that version of Let us know, let us know, let us know in particular, I actually do have nostalgia for because that was part of like the Christmas soundtrack. That my mom would say yeah. when I was little. So those those versions of songs that are like the ones that you remember from your childhood, like I always feels like those end up being the superior versions of Christmas songs. Because yeah. like I think for me that that version of Let It Snow is is the superior version of Let It Snow, and I can't hear a different version Definitely. without being like, this is not right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well. That's it. That's the end. They, they ride off in a limo, and that's the end. The credits are rolling. That is Die Hard. Yeah. Woo! Whew. I love this movie so much. <laughs> I really do. I really do. And a great movie to watch, and we had a great discussion about it. Yeah. I should bring up, now that we reached the ending, I can say that, and I guess spoilers for the book, for how it ends, yeah. but it's very tragic because we involve a character. We involve Joe Leland's daughter who is apparently an addict, and mm. she ends up dying wow. at the end of the book. So she's basically in the position of Holly, but she ends up falling out of the building with the villain. Oh, oh no. So, oh, no. Yeah, the book ends on that tragic note, and I'm like, that again, another another cynical part of the book, and, and then, and then af- after that, Leland takes the cash, that the criminals are trying, that the terrorists are trying to steal, and he just throws the ca- all the cash, all the, like, the company's cash out the window, because he's so mad. Not only, I, I keep mad, like, not only the terrorists, but he also blames Claxton, the corporation, for both the terrorist attack and for the loss of his daughter. So he just throws all the corporation's cash out the window. Yes, six million dollars in cash. Wow. Just to, to, to screw over Claxton. Wow. <laughs> Man, I'm gonna have to read this book. Like, I feel like I'm gonna have to bump that up my up my list. Uh, yeah, it, that sounds. It, it is, would just be interesting to read how different it is. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Powell is a character in the book, as well as, oh yeah, Gruber. So the villain here is named Anton Little Tony the Red Gruber. So oh. maybe maybe that's what Tony, maybe that's what Tony Vesky gets his name from in honor of. Yeah. Of Gruber and the book. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, any final thoughts on Die Hard? You know, this for me is one of those where it's like, it's one of my favorite movies. It's just a, a real, like, treat to watch. I just have so much fun watching this movie. And it is, it's one for me where it's like, you know, we all have those Christmas movies that we kind of have in our constant rotation. This is one for me that I, I feel like I have to watch every Christmas season. And I, I do, yeah. when I watch this movie, I do get a little upset that there is any debate with it being a Christmas movie. Because clearly, this is a Christmas movie. Yeah. Like, there there are horror, like, uh, Christmas horror movies. It's okay to have a Christmas action movie. Like, and I get that, that the Christmas aspect isn't, like, central to the plot of the movie, but it's there, and it, it, it serves a purpose, and it kind of sets things in motion. So I think because of that, and of course, the Christmas music. Like, there is Christmas music in this, and I think it's, I don't know, it's just, 
it's a, it's very much a Christmas movie for me, and I just love it. And it's it's uh, as I said at the very beginning, one of my favorite, one of one of the best action movies of all time. So yeah, my my final thoughts are that I just love this movie so much, and it's been uh, it's been a blast getting to talk about it in this this kind of detail because it's just been it's something that I, I am I, I was even more. I, I turned out to be even more excited than I was initially. Nice. Like, and I was super excited going into it and then actually doing it. I'm like, I'm just not going to shut up. I'm going to keep talking. That's how pumped I am. Yes. Gotta do that. Gotta do that. Yes. Well, movies like Die Hard, which <laughs> I, again, not to love for it. This is just for such a breeze to watch. Just going through all the action, the Christmas fun, the, you know, following Don McShane as, again, a different kind of protagonist for the time period. And just and Hans Gruber and Adam Rickman, Bruce Willis, oh, and uh, the characters, and uh, surprisingly positive representation for black men, for the parts of the movie that don't age too well, you know, gotta also handle those as well with the propaganda and the, and the media portrayal, and, you know, all of this makes for an enthralling ride, and I am glad yeah. I was able to rewatch it for this podcast, and definitely, like, keep the book in mind, and the book... It does have yeah. some beats with the, with the movie, like for example, taping his guns with back at the climax. Yes, that happens in the book. Nice. Or the firehouse beats that also happens. Dropping a C four bomb down an elevator shaft, crawling through the HVAC ducts. So die hard. It's an icon, Ooh. a signature movie, and yeah. other movies that try to copy it. You know, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. But this is yeah. the original. <gasps> so good. Yeah. So good. <laughs> Well, if that's all we have to say about Die Hard, this action Christmas statue, this pillar, yeah. then I think we can move on to Good Word. And that is the segment Ooh. where each of us gets to recommend something, a book, a movie, a TV show, a podcast, music, anything we want our listeners to check out. So, Andy, what is your Good Word? So, I think, I, I feel like I'm going to recommend something that's kind of like not that out there. But I finally had a chance. It's been out there for about like three, three or four weeks now uh, on Netflix. Even though it's it had a theatrical bow, uh, bow too, but I don't I don't live in an area where typically they play in theaters. But they did play it. This did play at our first run theater a few weeks ago. I had to miss it for various reasons, but I did finally sit down and watch uh, David Fincher's The Killer on Netflix. I thought you uh, say that. Am... Funnily enough, I actually yeah. did give that a good word recently. Oh, nice. So I'm just, I'm just going to echo your sentiments. <laughs> yeah, I finally got around to watching it. And man, I had a really good time with this movie because of, I feel like it kind of captures all angles of what this kind of movie can be. The first segment is very, very tense as it's setting up for the kill, but like nothing happens. Like, it's super tense because it's like the anticipation exactly. of what could happen. Exactly. And it's just waiting, waiting. And it's so good. And then the, 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 the event finally happens and you're just kind of like, oh, that's what's going on here. And so there's, there's good storytelling. There's kind of like the assassin character is kind of haunting in the way that he kills people. But then, you know, when he's, when he's getting his payback, uh, he's kind of chilling in how he does it. But then in the middle section of the movie, there is this badass fight scene that is just like I know what you're uh, talking about. Watching Michael Fassbender get thrown around 
and still somehow having, you know, the upper hand. It's so well choreographed, like just so much fun. And then after that scene is over, instead of giving us another balls out action movie, it's Michael Fassbender and Tilda Swinton at a table talking. And that scene is so good too. Like, I just, I, I love this movie because it's like, you think about a movie about an assassin and it should be one way. You know, our brain is like, oh, an assassin movie should be filled with action. You know, this international travel and there is international travel, but it is, it's so methodical. And I think it's, you know, there's, there's aspects to it that I haven't quite gone into yet. Kind of a reflection of David Fincher's career. But I think, you know, I, I was very disappointed in Mank. So it was nice to kind of see a return to form, kind of that, that style, that darker style of storytelling that David Fincher does. Yeah, I had a blast with The Killer. I was glad that I was finally able to watch it. So that's that's my recommendation. I'm also, I'm reading a book. Uh, nice. <laughs> I have a hard time reading. I, like, I just don't have the time anymore. But I am making myself read uh, MCU the uh, kind of uh, uh, version of like the the, the history of Mar- the Marvel films right, and kind of the right. rise and fall of it, and I think it's very good. I I kind of want to see where it goes because I think the authors are very very capable of kind of doing an analysis of what the Marvel Cinematic Universe has, how it's impacted movies in a not so good way. But right now, I'm only in the early stages, so it's kind of the celebration, like oh Iron Man, like. Wasn't that fun? It was fun. And it's just kind of, you know, we'll see where we go from there. But yeah, I recommend uh, so far. I, I haven't finished it, so I can't give it a full recommendation. But so far, I'm enjoying reading, reading uh, MCU. So there's two. I snuck a second one in there, Arthur. I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> yes. Just one, oh, yeah. So MCU, Tremaine of Marvel Studios, right? Yep. 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 That's right. By Dave Gonzalez, Gavin Edwards, and Joanna Robinson. Very good, very good. Yeah, Joanna Robinson is awesome. She's a podcaster that I uh, really enjoy getting to hear her her take on various things. Nice, so. nice. Well, Ray, that's your good word. I'm particularly glad to hear the killer gets thrown in there. I might have to rewatch Killer sometime. You know, yeah. just like before okay. the end of the year. Like it's not, it's not Seven or the Social Network or the like or like the Game yeah. or Fight Club, but still, it's a pretty damn good movie and David Fincher's filmography and. Yeah. I really enjoyed it, like you. And so, yeah, I might have to rewatch it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. I like it. I would would definitely watch it again, so. Yeah. Now for my good word, I'm actually going to take three movies here. Typically, I do try to restrain myself with just one recommendation. But you know what? I'll go with three movies here. Particularly in honor of Melissa Bordelera. Because recently, she was fired from Scream 7 because of her stance on Palestine, being pro-Palestinian, posting on Instagram a lot, on her Instagram story, so she was fired for that by Spyglass Studios, fuck you Spyglass. And I have been going to most filmography, and just really enjoying her as an actor, and I would like to recommend a few movies, a few of her movies, to, you know, support that. So there is one, uh, Carmen, that came out just this past year, well actually, like, officially the release date is 2022, but like, wide release, it was 2023. Yeah. That starts her Paul Mescal. It's an interesting movie to watch. Like it's a musical, and it involves all the surreal imagery and like top-notch dance choreography and cinematography. Just really gorgeous to watch. I do wish the script could have been stronger though. Like story, like story-wise, it could have been stronger. But still, like purely as a visual experience, just watching it like as a a visual experience, a musical experience. 
I found it to be enthralling in that sense. So yeah. that's one movie, Carmen. And then nice. another movie, In the Heights, which also musicals. And that yeah. I really enjoy. Just gorgeous. The cinematography, the also dance choreography is just elaborate in that movie. Costume design. I love following this whole ensemble of characters, just following the story, the themes of the movie. And so I do understand the criticisms that the movie has garnered for its colorism. And I think that something like Encanto, for example, did a much better job on that front on presenting its Colombian characters with multiple skin tones, particularly darker tones. Whereas yeah. In the Heights does fall prey to the colorism, focusing mostly on like lighter skinned characters or white passing characters. So I understand yeah. criticisms for that, but In the Heights, and, and also Lin Manuel Miranda, I do love his work as well. Yeah. That, that was a, a really fun movie to watch, and again, 2022's Bed Rest. That is the third and final movie I recommend of Melissa's work, and that is a horror movie, an intriguing horror movie. I'm conflicted over it because I did give it two and a half stars on Letterboxd, okay. but I also did give it a heart. I pressed the heart button because I, like the first two acts, I wish they could have been better. I feel like the first acts are very slow, but the third act is very heart-wrenching and terrifying. Like the way it ends is a great payoff as it revolves around this woman who is pregnant and she has to undergo bed rest at home. And so, and, she, and there's all this paranormal stuff happening around her as undergoing bed rest. And again, slowness of the first two acts, but then the third act, again, heartbreaking, scary to watch, great payoff there, and and Melissa Bolivera is really strong in that movie. It's just like, in general, I enjoy her as an actor, but in that movie particularly, giving a, an impressive performance there, able to flesh yeah. out her character. Nice. So, yeah, those are, the, those are the three movies, Carmen, and the Heights, and Bed Rest, and I'm hoping that Melissa will, uh, will be able to have a career in Hollywood, after mm-hmm. all of this, I don't want her to get blacklisted for being pro-Palestinian nope. while watching other people nope. like uh, like Noah Schnaff be a full-on Zionist who gets to hand out uh, Zionism as sexy stickers and Hamas as Isis stickers and Amy Schumer also being a Zionist and, and Gal Gadot being a Zionist yeah. and Mel Gibson being an, an anti-Semite and he's still able to yeah. work in Hollywood. Not, not, not even just anti-Semitic, but Mel Gibson <laughs> is just like bigotry all around. Just garbage, you <laughs> But oh, oh, but, 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 but when Melissa is standing up for Palestine, no, 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 Spyglass must mm-hmm. fire you. Spyglass calls her out for making yeah. false references to genocide. It's just like, wow, you really gonna go back far as Spyglass? Well, guess what? I'll just boycott your damn Scream 7. Which is gonna be a fucking yeah. reboot. Yeah, a fucking reboot of the right. franchise, my favorite horror franchise. It feels like they are really just burning it all down, is what it feels like Scream Spyglass is, my, is doing here. Scream is my favorite horror franchise, and it is also a yeah. franchise I believe has been consistently pretty damn good. But now, and I'm yeah. watching it, I'm watching Spyglass burn it all down. If mm-hmm. I have Melissa Bedalera, and then Jenna Ortega ends up leaving, and then it's like, yeah. wow, like Spyglass, did you... How did you think the Scream fans were going to react to that decision, how to fire Melissa, huh? Huh? It's such a, it's such a uh, uh, fishy situation, too, with the way that, you know, after they fired uh, Melissa Barrera and then Jenna Ortega left, and apparently that had been months in the making. Oh. Very convenient for any yeah. of that to come out the day after they fired Melissa Barrera. But, yeah. Oh. So, so convenient. Yeah. But, hey, you know what? Uh, 
I support Melissa Barbera, and I I've got the other screen movies I love, you know, and Boycott uh, yeah. Team Seven, yeah. and uh, Pro Palestine, you know, and uh, Free Palestine, and uh, yeah. yeah, you know, those are the, those are my good words, yeah. my good words again. Yeah, Common like and Heights and Bad Rest, and I think nice. Bad Rest, Bad Rest is on, is on Tubi, you know, so give me on yeah. Tubi. It's, awesome. like, it's like a very small indie horror movie. Yeah, excellent. I will I will bump it up my list. <laughs> right, right. Well. Now you've given out good words, Andy. So I want to thank you so much once again for coming on to Two Cents Critic for your first guest spot. And hopefully I'd love to have you back on for more. And now you get to promote yourself, promote your podcasts. Where can people find you online? Oh, Arthur, this has been a blast. Uh, thank you so much for having having me. This has been fun to just chatting with you. You know, not not even necessarily about Die Hard, just chatting with you in general. <laughs> you can find me online. Basically, just do a search for Fat Dude Digs Flicks. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Letterboxd. I'm on the hell site that is Twitter slash X, at least, you know, for the time being. Yeah, but you can typically find me under Fat Dude Digs Flicks or Fat Dude Flicks. Podcast is available wherever you get your podcast. It is under Fat Dude Digs Flicks movie podcasts. But on that little network, I do Let's Talk About, which is an interview show where I'm joined by a guest. We talk about their life, uh, their passions, and then a movie that has had an impact on them. Arthur, I'm going to hit you up to be a guest on the show sometime in the near future. Just I so hope you know. so, please do. Uh, it would be it would be a lot of fun to chat with you about a movie that really like kind of like cemented your love of movies or like you know just what you wanted to, to do with your life. It'd be a lot of fun. But yeah, the goal of that show is just to talk with the guest and and kind of understand their love for movies. And then I also do the Criterion Break, uh, which is with a couple friends of mine, Blake Ginnathan and Derek Fearing. We dive into our love for the Criterion Collection proper, the physical media aspect of Criterion Collection, and the Criterion Channel. It's just kind of a little way for us to like put our noses in the air and be snooty about the art house films that we really love and, and kind of get to discover. Because there's a lot of stuff on there that in the collection and on the channel that we haven't seen before. So kind of getting a chance to experience that with the three of us just chatting about it. So those are the best places to find out what I'm up to. And as for my socials, you can find this podcast on Twitter and Instagram at two underscore sense critics. You can follow my personal account on Twitter, Good Pods, Storygraph, Letterboxd, and TikTok at Arthur underscore and 18. You can find me on Goodreads at Arthur Howell. If you want to email me, you can reach me at email at two cents critic at yahoo.com. You can also check out my blog at two cents critic.com. And make sure you subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's on iTunes, Spotify, Podcast Addict, CastBox, all of those services. And make sure you do the ratings and reviews especially because they do help to bump us up the shots, the numbers, spread us in more ears. Gotta boost those numbers. Yes. <laughs> and again, thank you so much, Andy. This was such a fun time covering a movie like Die Hard here for Two Cents Critic Merry Months. Thank you so much, Arthur. You're welcome. And until next time, stay healthy and stay strong.